This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Out of Pocket. The track, Wrong Hand. This is a single coming off of a pre-order which will be available and released July 7th. Streets of Hate Records building up a bigger roster, out of pocket, West Coast shit. This is off the release, Waste of a Man. So don't sleep on the pre-orders. Represent for all of these Bay Area bands. It's getting crazy out there to see so many awesome bands from the Bay finally getting love. It's uh, crazy for me to say 24 years ago we went to the Bay for the first time and instantly got a lot of love. So I love seeing the respect and the bands coming from Bay finally getting love. Obviously the powerhouses, the lowlifes, the sworn vengeance. You know, these are the guys that we came up with. But, you know, needless to say, the tsunamis, the gulches, the drains, the out-of-pockets. I mean, you got a list of about 50 fucking bands right now that everybody loves from the Bay. So, big ups to Streets of Hate for putting this shit out. July 7th, get that shit. And you can pre-order now, but it comes out July 7th. I had to get my head straight after the intro just because... I had not had planned to even think of this. You don't plan for the shit. But needless to say, our friends, Year of the Knife, have had a situation, a tragic accident. Now, tragic doesn't mean death. It just means that it sucks to see a band out on the road going from one show to the next have a calamity Befall them. So the good news is that everybody is breathing. And it looks as if when everything's said and done, everyone's going to be coming home. And there'll be some time off for them to recover. But you're the knife. 
was on tour with Creeping Death, and they played in Salt Lake City and got into an accident. My very dear friend, Maddie, is the worst off, but she's a fighter. She's resilient as hell. One of the most stubborn motherfuckers in the first of this earth. And I know she's going to recover, and that's all I can say about that. The twins both got broken legs, which is kind of funny because if they didn't break both their legs, the doctor could have came in and it'd been weird to see which leg was broke or which twin had which leg broke. So I'm glad that God sorted out and just gave both twins broken legs. And God's appointed anointed son, uh, Brandon Watkins, ended up unscathed, which is actually worse because he's got to deal with the injuries and talking to everybody at home. So if you are a person of faith or with faith, pray for everyone's speedy recovery. And then also, needless to say, there is a GoFundMe, which is doing well, but shit like this happens, you never know the outcome. And it's going to be, you know, a week or two before we really know the full details of how this is all going to shake out. But if I know you're the knife and Maddie the way I do, it won't be long before they're back on the road. So this is why it's important to support these touring bands. This is why it's always important to give love to your friends and to check in on them and all that other nice shit. So much love to everybody in Year of the Knife, but especially Maddie, the fighter. And hopefully she can get her life back in order when all this is said and done. Well, now that we can get on to other things, this is a second week of some PA hardcore shit. And I love AJ. I love everything that he's done. And I was very happy to have him on the show. It's a good continuation if you had if you had listened to Ty's conversation. But you don't have to go back and listen to last week, even though they kind of complement each other well, because some, some themes are touched on both weeks. In general, hardcore is doing well all over, whether it's the Bay, Western Pennsylvania, courtesy of preserving hardcore, or in Philadelphia. If you are in Philadelphia this weekend, please go to the show at the First Unitarian Church that Bob Wilson has put together. That fucking NEG, man, they're no joke. This is hot off the new record. Play in Philadelphia, and you get to see one of the coolest lineups at the First Unitarian Churches has ever had. This is actually um, awesome, if you think about it, to think of never in a game. Gridiron, laid to rest, strength for reason, and division of mind. Now, the show's a 7 o'clock show. There's still tickets at the door. Don't sleep on it. It's going to be fucking one for the books. Sadly, me and the boys in Shattered Realm, our boy Greg, are going to be in Chicago or flying home. Well, Chicago, um, the Greg will be on to the next show, but Shattered Realm boys will be in Chicago, so I'll be missing this one. Hate being away from home for a wild church show. At the Cobra Lounge, Shadow Realm, back in Chicago, playing with our dear friends in Hold My Own. Anshit, who plays in many bands, plays guitar in Shadow Realm, but also holds it down for Hold My Own. Greg Mavalcetto, one of my dear friends, tour stage manager for This Is Hardcore, friends for over 20-something years. Tells you to come to Chicago and play. You fucking go and play. So we'll be celebrating with Volcano. Our friend's Fool's Game. I don't have the flyer in front of me, so that's all I remember. 
But it's at the Cobra Lounge. Hopefully this shit's going to be wild because we're missing the shit from never ending game. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of shows coming up in Philadelphia. The best way to see all these shows and go to them is to follow phillyhcshows.com or follow them on the Instagram at phillyhcshows. Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't picked up that this is a podcast named after the great This Is Hardcore Festival, it is. And we are getting close to one month from it. This is when people who slept the whole time are like, yo, I still got to get tickets. I can tell you the two-day tickets are going, so you might want to jump on them sooner than later. And we still got a bunch of show uh, show tickets for the single days. A Saturday, something special, man. I mean, Gorilla Biscuits, Silent Majority, to, to me, just having those two bands together is crazy. But, I mean, the whole, all the lineups speak for themselves. But, I mean, Sunday, Bane, th- that's the return, especially after seeing them. It's going to be something special. This is a good year for us. Not that, you know, no one books a fest and says, you know, this year isn't too bad. You know, like no one's out here downplaying. But, you know, I don't want to break balls every month and just say how great the fest is. But... This is an awesome lineup. We still got tickets, and I hope that you can come out. The Friday, August 4th is completely sold out, so you'll have to go to the show Saturday, August 5th, or Sunday, August 6th. Tickets at thisishardcorefest.com. You can follow This Is Hardcore Twitter, T-I-H-C Fest, or you can follow us at This Is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. Um, going to be appearing on some podcasts. Not too many. Got a couple lined up where I'm talking on someone else's show, so you might want to check that out. In general, Hardcore is doing fucking absolutely fantastic. The story that you're about to hear is one of a person who not only has the drive to continue to curate and present this amazing scene of ours in the area of Pittsburgh, but just went to fucking crazy lengths and is a champion in my eyes for all the shit that he managed to pull off in Pittsburgh. But if I had to have a short seam report i would say that this entire summer has been a blessing so far or at least the early spring shows in the summer just show me that all there is is new bands showing up still new kids coming in shows have been popping records are dropping and it's a great thing for hardcore from from my point of view and i hope that i get to see you all whether it's in chicago whether you are hanging out with my friend bob wilson july 2nd or you're hanging out with all of us at this is hardcore this is a great time for hardcore punk. I'm happy to see it rise the way it has. And I really hope that you enjoy this specific interview because this guy, AJ, is way too fucking humble. Kind of a pain in the ass to get answers out of him at first. But it's not in what he says. It's what he did. And you can see the humility in him when we talk about the things that he's accomplished, the deeds that he's done, and the impact in his regular hardcore scene. And I hope that you guys enjoy this one. Let's fucking go. This guest has been a long time coming. In fact, if there was an award that goes to one of the most prominent and engaging members of the Pennsylvania hardcore scene, I mean, the overall all-star, outrageous performance AJ's put on in the last two years just by creating something as, I think, not only unique but as important as pre- preserving silence. I think he would deserve any of those kind of awards, man. AJ has been a keystone in the Pittsburgh hardcore scene for longer than what most people know of the Pittsburgh hardcore scene. 
And then with his own distro, which has turned into a brick and mortar place, which is now a multi-room venue in the far southwest corner of Pennsylvania. It's outrageous to see how he built something from nothing to be what will be for many years a pivotal change in the entire area to which he's from. So AJ, thank you for everything you've done for hardcore in your own area in general. And more importantly, thank you for going beyond the box and pursuing dreams and making other people's dreams uh, possible with these fucking entrepreneurial moves, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate the intro. I don't know what to say after that. That's a little hard, but I mean, honestly, I know in times where you may have moments of what the fuck am I doing this for? Remember that you're doing something that few in the entire country, in our entire country, few have done what you've just done. And also just remember also for the amount of time you've been involved in hardcore, there's few people that have been involved in hardcore as engaged as pursuing and doing the things that you've done. And sometimes when things are hard, remember that you are doing the Lord's work. I got to like record a little snippet of this and listen to this every morning when I wake up. I just always like to make sure that people that come on the show understand their, their value and their position and their impact on hardcore. So for me, you're now the blueprint. Like if I could have gone back 13 years ago and started really edging this is hardcore towards something like that, I feel like it was a missed opportunity because in seeing what you've done and the commitment and the outcome, it, you could create a fucking blueprint that could literally change the entire landscape of American hardcore. You know, it's, it's fucking incredible. But let's get into you, your personal life, and we'll work our way to this tremendous achievement. Now, I'm assuming that you've always lived in that area. Is that correct? Yeah, loosely. You know, I, I always have made a point to stay out of Pittsburgh proper, but I've always been within, you know, whatever it is, 20, 25 minutes of it. So what was the family like? What was the specific atmosphere around which all this started? Uh, what was your childhood like and what was the music that your parents were listening to and what started really getting you on the path to where you're at now musically? Yeah, so I didn't have a father growing up. Uh, my mom tells me that, you know, she believes in the whole music's in your blood thing, though. Apparently he was some polka musician or whatever. So I was banging on drums, doing everything right out the gates. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think music was specifically there. I was more into, like, wrestling and Star Wars and the typical thing kids are into. But so then when I did find out about music, I, like, instantly lost interest in, you know, quote the kids stuff i know that's like blasphemy to call wrestling kids stuff around these parts but yeah i don't know just uh you know the typical route someone's older brother you know friend's older brother gives you the metallica mixtape and then you get the offspring or the boston cds and you know everything just keeps going from there but i guess the real pivotal moment was uh seeing hatebreed open for danzig that was like yeah. You get punched in the face within like 30 seconds of getting in the pit when you're like 14, 15, and you're just like, okay. And this is, I, I sometimes, you know, I like to be sympathetic towards the kid that are trying to figure out, you know, hardcore versus metal and 
why am I being punched in the face? Uh, but then sometimes I don't because I'm like, well, wait a minute. This took me like 30 seconds to figure out like, yo, something different is here. You know, this is <laughs> there's something different about this. Let me take a step back. Let me observe a little bit. So, yeah, did that, you know, found out about hardcore uh, pretty instantly. Uh, got involved in the local scene primarily via no retreat, you know. What playing. was the what was, when you when you found hardcore? What was the uh, what was the unearthing? What was the thing that made you go, wait, 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 what was that? Like, what was the moment? Yeah, so it's interesting because you know this was like late '90s, so you know I had like whatever year Oz. I think it was '96, the Ozfest CD that had Earth Crisis and Biohazard on it and whatever. And to me, you know, musically, when you know, I'm sure everyone. It's interesting because the people you and I's age, it is easy for us to rewind in our head and remember a time, you know, quote unquote, before the internet. But maybe that's not easy for someone who has grown up and all information is accessible at all times. So I don't know. Try to imagine, you know, just like, oh, I got this compilation CD. I like these bands, but that's all I really know about it. You know, it's like, oh, this is cool music. You know, so to me, I was unknowingly sitting there listening to hardcore right but i'm just like oh this is just like metal but it was like a groove to it and the lyrics are kind of different you know uh actually coincidentally technically the first like live band i ever saw was murphy's law because uh i went to see the misfits and they were the opening band but you know so like, oh, this is like a punk band i do remember getting some sticker though that had the new york hardcore logo on it you know what i mean i was just like i thought it was maybe just like their little tagline right you know but like I said, all, you know, within a few months, you know, you put all the pieces together, you kind of figure it out. There's something different going on here. And then, you know, the, the difference between, like I said, Hatebreed would hang out with the crowd, uh, you know, whereas I, I like tried to give Danzig a high five, you know, like 14 or some shit and the security guard, like, you know, karate chopped my arm or some shit away from them, you know, just stuff like that. You start to piece these like, wait a minute, what? There's something different than just the music, you know, it's the attitude, it's the personality. It's, this is way cooler, you know? Yeah. No, I've, um, it's funny. You also touched on wrestling because for people our age, you got that thrusted on you. It wasn't something that was so mainstream at the present, which is what is now with the, from the late nineties onward, where it was like on mainstream nighttime TV, there was almost something like a ritual for me of Saturday morning wrestling or seeing those uh, for me, it was like also seeing the WCW promos was really yeah. like my entrance in the heart uh, to the real wrestling, not just like in passing stuff. I can remember, um, um, I can remember specifically the whole Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes thing. And kind of to this day, I think the promo end of it before it got so dumb that they would like, there was that moment in the early 2000s where every wrestler had to talk in the middle of the ring, which yeah. made me just go shut up and fucking fight. Yeah. Previously in the 80s, I just loved the fucking promos. It was so exciting. And then. Yeah, like you said, like you kind of have to put those things away and start rocking out in the pit, you know? Yeah, looking back, there's a good chance that pro wrestling is why we're all insane. You know, I I watch some of the clips back now. I'm thinking about the fact that I was watching this shit when I was like five, six, seven, eight, and I'm just these grown men just screaming insane things at each other. And ultimately, 
you know, deciding that they had to fight over it. <laughs> and also, too, I mean, I was watching ECW, too. Uh, my mom drew the line at taking me to ECW events. She wouldn't let me go see the events. They were yeah, pretty well, lewd. They were pretty yeah. fucking lewd. I mean, not just in the in the atmosphere of the crowd, like getting down there. I remember one time a bunch of us went down on the L train and someone was crazy enough to steal a street sign from the neighborhood and threw it in the fucking ring and it was used. <laughs> it was used, but it was like you knew going down there if you if like I know friends who went down there in groups of four, but we would go down there in groups of a dozen or so. And there was actually even times when some of the ECW guys before it was really blowing up were doing local wrestling shows at the local Catholic high school just to get people our age involved. And I remember one of our friends like trying to get in the ring and entice it. We were like, dude, you're going to get killed. You know, there was a special thing about that ECW arena and the vibe was very crazy inside, outside, before and after. Yeah, it is interesting. Some of the parallels between hardcore and, you know, at least that, that tentacle of wrestling, you know. Now, off in the grand scheme of life. Now, when you, uh, how do you link up with the guys in No Retreat? Uh, so, you know, we were, I had a, you know, small circle of friends from my town that got into it with me. Most of, of course, fallen off by now, but, you know, we had a little crew of like eight or 10 of us that would pretty, frequently roll out and yeah i mean they were just the guys that were cool to the younger kids you know uh there was like kind of like a a simultaneous kind of elitist scene going on that you know uh that roboto project venue here in pittsburgh that little diy co-op which like yeah i went to shows there but like i'd get like frowned upon for moshing you know it's like it's just you can especially look back at it now being an adult and be like, wow, what kind of fucking dickhead like frowns upon some 15-year-old kid trying to get involved in something, right? You know, it's like, so the No Retreat dudes and that scene was definitely more welcoming, open arms, you know, compared to the, I guess, looking back, what would now be called the PC scene, you know? So, yeah, that was definitely, I mean, obviously the music appealed to us more, but, you know, when you're 15 and you know, you like what you like, but at the same time, if of course people are being more welcoming and cool to you, like I always remember just, you know, in passing outside there, of course, you know, probably trying to figure out like who the fuck are these 15 year old kids rolling out to our shows, you know, when everyone else there is like a drunken hooligan, you know, and it just, like, oh, you know, just somehow casual conversation came up that like, Oh yeah, I play bass and I learned some of your songs, blah, blah, blah. And they fucking like, stuck me on stage and you know i thought that was of course the coolest thing ever and you know going into high school the next day with some black guy he accidentally caught a fist in the pit you know and stuff was like at the time the most exciting thing that can happen in your life right for me i i find a lot of uh similarities in that we were going down to stalag 13 west philadelphia now i've been to some other shows but you know those flyers were kind of circulating a lot when we really started getting heavy into traveling we would go down there all the time and it got to the point where we were regulars and there was always occasional some crazy shit and there was a time once we're before punishment started playing but when we were traveling a lot where god forbid die cast and somebody else were trying to come down and play and the booker who's you know bizarrely enough from my same neighborhood supposedly you know punker it was in a very cool 
uh, you know, punk band that hardcore punk band that's now reuniting this year. But he uh he straight up told them, I don't think it's a good idea. You know, those guys, you know, if those guys come, it's always a bad problem, blah, blah, blah. And it really went up my ass because whether it was like a Dillinger 4, Dillinger Escape Plan, you know, um, no matter the show, we were down there so much that I found it to be really disingenuous for them to go ahead and tell our friends that there could be a real big problem if we're there because we were already fucking there. But yeah. that was like that. That's like the pre-internet term for gatekeeping. It was like, we'll take your money if you're coming to our shows, but we don't want to see some of your own bands play there. And I yeah. find that the DIY spaces that promulgate really politically correct ideas and really crazy anarcho leftist things, sometimes they create these scenarios to keep the people who are also trying to support their venues and support their scenes from having any impact or like, you know, involvement in the performances that go on there, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, revenge of the nerds. It's, you know, they, they, they <laughs> I love that little, term. Yeah. It's their own little thing. They can feel like they're in charge of something, but here, you know, we kind of just took it over the Roboto project. We ended up running it for like the final years of it actually being like a cool thing, you know, got to the point where the calendar was filled with terror and, you know, whoever else shows. So that was fun here at least. So what was going on when you guys first started rolling in there? Uh, not just like, give me a sense of your, of you getting involved or just being around. What was the scene like? Yeah. So Pittsburgh in the early two thousands, like I said, there were kind of two simultaneous things going on. There was the, the fast hardcore or as Bob Wilson called it, normal hardcore, which is the funniest thing ever. But yeah, there was that kind of scene that kind of hovered around Roboto. Like I remember Shark Attack and those types of bands would play there. And then, you know, the heavier stuff, the Pittsburgh stuff that at the time was definitely like frowned upon. That was kind of its own thing. That was at whatever random shithole bar or Millville Industrial Theater was kind of the spot for a minute. Uh, you know, that anything goes types of places. It was kind of relegated to those kind of spots. You know, we like all the music, especially when you're young and wide-eyed. Everything sounds cool. Um, so, you know, we would go to everything, but we were definitely embraced in one versus the other. Um, there was. We had, a, we had, like, a big venue, which, you know, looking back, we didn't have anything to compare to. At the time, we didn't think it was that cool. It was called Club Laga. But yeah, we was, played there. We played there. Yeah, I remember that. But, I mean, I mean, looking back now, compared to other venues that size, the place was the shit, you know? Um, you know, it's a thing where just it was just in a college town, the whole nine yards. But it, tour packages, yeah, at the time, information wasn't flowing as well as, as it is now. So, like I said, but you don't know at the time that like every other city, these tour packages are doing some fire hall in West Virginia or somewhere and drawing like 50 kids. And then it's coming to Pittsburgh and doing like 500. So we didn't know it, but it was kind of this, you know, glory days of, you know. That was the bigger stuff, you know, the victory stuff and the trust kill ferret, that whole world. But um, yeah, all those things were kind of going on simultaneously. We were at shows five, six nights a week for years. And then, you know, then it reaches a point where our bands start becoming a little, at least regionally, you know, relevant. We're the ones booking the shows, you know, cultivating the venues and whatever. And, you know, things dip down for a while and everyone reaches that age where they, whatever go to college decide they're not actually cut out for this whatever it may be 
So there's definitely a dip for a while there, but you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead to current day, but yeah, we definitely came in for sure. Very fortunate looking back, just having everything kind of at our disposal and, you know, things die out and you got to build it back up. Of course. Uh, you touched on West Virginia and in the last week's episode with Ty, we talked a lot of traveling. Were you also doing travels out to West Virginia and Ohio or were you just kind of keeping it local? Yeah. So Erie was actually at its like peak uh, still at that point. Like everyone I'm sure knows the late nineties, but like brothers keeper era, but it was still like insane up until probably the early two thousands. Uh, yeah. I was going up there two, three times a week throughout that whole process. Ford hall was the spot up there. Okay. I love those shows. And for, even that smaller room they did, there was a show with the Swaria death threat, uh, buried alive. Continental me. Yeah, it was a smaller room, but it was and it was so god goddamn good because it was more than just the eerie kids. It was a little bit of everything, you know. It was fucking awesome to be a part of all that. Yeah, and it's you know, it's I'm not at all discrediting eerie, but it was part of it was just that I don't think there was a cool venue in Cleveland at the time. I don't think there was a cool venue in Buffalo at the time. Uh Pittsburgh, like I said, it was before we had Club Laga, and you know, there was it was Erie was just this little, you know, happenstance center point of all these cities where they had the cooler venue and, you know, EMS was up there pretty heavily involved and, you know, making sure that the right bands are getting taken care of. I mean, to be honest, we're trying to replicate that to some degree right now. You know, I don't, I'm hoping that what we're doing now is something similar in the sense of sure. Maybe some of these tour packages are going to some cities around us, but, they're in a lame venue or they're, you know, they're not being handled or promoted properly. So we're hoping to get Pittsburgh being uh, at least out this way. It's like borderline Midwest area. We're going to try to get people coming in from other cities because, you know, Pittsburgh is just not as big of a city as some people maybe think it is. I don't know because the sports teams are relevant. I don't know what it is, but Pittsburgh's like a glorified town basically, you know, so we kind of have to pull from other parts and, you know, looking back on how Erie did that pretty successfully, it's definitely something, you know, I'm trying to replicate now. When you think of the best, what were the worst aspects of that time going on? Um, yeah, like I said, definitely the elitism aspect, but that was pretty isolated, you know, like ultimately our favorite bands weren't playing there. You know, I, I can only, I could even probably only tell you less than five or 10 shows that was like, went to that whole, you know, Roboto world that was like a huge bummer. Like, it was just like randomly like burnt by the sun and Martyr AD or something would play there. And you're just like, ah, cool. I'm going to go there and people are going to like try to kick me out for moshing or whatever. So, you know, little things like that. That was the downside occasionally. You know, like I said, we were so young enough to where we just had to go wherever the bands that we wanted to see went. We weren't the guys putting the work and calling the shots yet. So that part, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I hate to call it a negative, but I mean, fights were way more common back then. So whatever your opinion may be, ultimately it does typically lend to shorter lifespans of venues, you know, especially when you're at these random bars and they're just like, yeah, they're cool with it. If things are cool and they're making some money, but then the second chick gets real, they're like, nah, get out of here. I always so. waver. I always waver back and forth. One was were fights necessary, or were 
they the problem and i think where i would sit as of right now <laughs> there were obvious reasons to fight and then there was just a atmosphere where people can fight and depending on what the day was show was bam was person was it usually followed into one of those two categories but it was definitely not just in your area it was pretty much everywhere at that time yeah, you know, and as with most things in life, it's situational, right? Sometimes it was maybe excessive, and then other times it was necessary. And it's like a shame that it doesn't still happen sometimes, right? You know, but yeah, in general, you know, like I said, whatever your opinion may be, it does lead to factually shorter lifespans with venues, you know. When you um when you first started realizing that. Were you ever in the thought process like I got to do something on my own to get away from these bars, or did that take longer to see it in? Yeah, I mean, right out the gate, as soon as we started having to miss shows because we weren't twenty-one, that right there was like, okay, we're just gonna do our own thing, which we did. Uh, I guess I left that out <laughs> when I was just giving you a little. I totally forgot. I guess we we actually ran a venue that has a bit of a cult cult status. Maybe it's called Planet of the Apes. We did it. The the one on one on that was we were like I said we were like fifteen. My mom was cool. She would drive us to the city for shows most of the time, but you know she had somewhat of a life. She couldn't be driving us to shows six nights a week, so we'd occasionally miss shit, or the occasional show would be over twenty one, or like I said, sometimes the show would just go to the venue that we thought was whack or whatever. So yeah, we found this garage in our hometown, Natrona Heights, which is not far from where I'm currently at here in New Kensington, but uh. Yeah, it's like a three-car garage. Uh, some senile old lady just, I guess, inherited it from her husband who passed away. She met us there to show us the place. And, I mean, this place was a dump. It was literally like oil on the entire floor to the point that we would use like the harshest chemicals known to man to clean this place up. And we spent like weeks on it. And she's like sitting there giving us this tour, being like, oh, yeah, there was a family that was living here last month. Uh, this place is, you guys are going to have a great time with this place. So, uh, yeah, we were just like, just nod our head. And just as long as we put $200 cash a month in her uh, uh, mailbox, we were good to go. Uh, we had shows there for nine months before we got shut down, which is another interesting thing. We had a website, but like pre social media, like the cops couldn't find it. So anytime the cops would show up. <laughs> so lo-fi. It's crazy. Yeah, seriously. It's like it, I, I lived through it and I can barely re remember a time when life worked like this. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, we had a website. We promoted the shows publicly, but like the cops didn't know how to use the internet well enough to find it. So anytime they would show up, we would just, you know, fortunately, you know, most of these shows, they were averaging maybe 50, 60 people, you know, some pretty DIY kids booking shows kind of thing. And, Every time they would show up, we would just be like, no, nah, man, this is a, we're just hanging out. We're just practicing, you know, and they can never quite sting us, but we did eventually have bleeding through and under oath and bands show up and yeah, we got shut down that day. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I got off subject a little bit, but yeah. That no, was no, no, like, no, 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 no. You're dead on subject. And the story was great. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo I love hearing about people pushing the limits. And I also think about like that time as like so much shit was just like still underground like purely underground like there's no like cop able just to go and look at social media or something like that so thinking that yeah. the local police would be like damn they got us again 
Yeah, I, mean, I can't even looking back. I don't even understand. Like, how did we even? How did we even find out about this? <laughs> That's so fucking cool. Yeah, but I mean, to uh, to really put the icing on that cake, when we got the building, I mean, it had no running water, uh, no bathroom. We actually it had no power. We we literally gave our friend's uh, uncle a case of fucking beer, and he was some electrician, and he ran. He came over one night, like midnight, and he somehow tapped off the electricity from the Chinese restaurant in front of the place. Yeah, Ty mentioned that. He's like, yeah, we just kind of did this. I was like, dude, that's fucking great. Yeah, yeah. He booked show. He booked like full-blown chaos there. So, yeah, we kind of did our own thing, you know, so. When did, when did you start linking up with him? Can you remember the first time you ran into him? Probably around then, you know. He, uh, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to listen to his episode, so I apologize if I'm reiterating. No, it's actually better because then that way you're not uh, researched on the answers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was somewhere around there. Uh yeah, because I remember they 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 booked it. They contacted me to rent the room out to the Stillborn Records tour back when Jamie Josta would still like call you and book Dead Wrong and Full Blown Chaos and the Takeover. Was that the first time you knew Ty, or you knew him ahead of time? We probably knew each other from just seeing each other around shows, but I guess that was that sealed the deal. Our first business dealing, fifty dollars rent. Dude, beautiful 2000s prices. Yep. So if we're walking this through, once you got through with that venue, what were your thoughts? Like, I got to I gotta keep doing this. Like, when did you even think about distroing? Yeah, I was kind of, you know, just living the hardcore life 24-7 at the time. So I was doing a little bit of everything. And I don't know, it just kept taking different forms. I got into some touring there for a while with our band and, Joined up with Two Peter Die out of Iowa, who was touring like 10 months a year, which bands did back then, which is also crazy to think about. So, yeah, I don't know. We did it kind of all. What band were you, what band were you touring with at the time? Uh, Two Peter Die, who I oh, actually cool. still play with now. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so we did the whole like full time touring thing for a little bit, you know. As always, was I mean, still to this day, I'm still trying to find like, you know, the, the successor, I'm trying to like find some young kids that want to take the throne and book the shows, you know? So, you know, like they come and go over the years, you know, we've definitely had little eras here and there where other kids were kind of picking up some slack and booking the shows while we were maybe, you know, investing some, uh, some time and energy into other aspects of life or hardcore, but yeah, ultimately we always end up coming back and doing the same thing. When did you think of really getting involved and pushing people? Like, obviously, Jamie talked a lot about you in his episode about you mentoring them. But when did you go from not focusing on your own traveling, but starting to push and bring up these younger folks in your area? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I get, I think I'm always kind of seeking out other people to like share the weight with, right? It's like, uh, there's no money being made. Right. So it's not like I'm trying to like, uh, keep all the, the power to myself. Like I want other, if anything, it'd be nice to have some people pulling some weight. Right. So, and like I said, there certainly have been, I mean, there were kids that were booking shows for a few years, like during the, maybe whatever it was, we'll say 2000, 
seven to 2014, maybe somewhere in there. Like there were a couple different kids that were, you know, being the kids who would like book trapped under ice and book, uh, the power trip on their first tours and whatever, you know, Brooke who helps you with the fest, obviously she was out here, she was booking some shows. So, you know, there's definitely been other people for sure. Uh, definitely carrying some weights. You know, I always, I did a concert production for a bigger promoter here in the city for about a decade. And that took up. How a did lot you, uh, how did you walk up into that? Explain let's, let's go down that road. Yeah. That's kind of like, I don't know, almost natural progression. I, so I, I kind of referenced earlier, so we did Planet of the Apes like 2002, 2003. And then, you know, then we started yeah, all those original guys who were running this Roboto, you know, the whole DIY collectively run show space. Uh, a lot of those dudes take the natural course. They, of course, they get a little older. They stop being straight edge. They stop being punk, basically. You know, they start basically just becoming bar band type dudes. That, that place was kind of being left out to hang so i don't know maybe if some people listening to this have maybe never heard of the concept of a diy cooperative show space it's it's all really from my understanding at least you know basically all seems like uh copy paste from gilman street out in california and abc no rio new york where you know it's you know basically to simplify it it's just commies you know just believing that five people are going to run it and then it just doesn't usually work out in time but those places are at least gilman is still going but yeah you know roboto it was like you know five person board you get elected and theoretically everyone shares all the duties and there's memberships that you can buy and blah 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 you know whatever uh, i'll sounds I'll like this sounds like the skit from monty python yeah it's it's very convoluted time has shown me and it just does. It just never works, and ultimately, it just comes down to like a guy who has to just fucking run the shit, you know. And you know, I got elected to that board and helped there for a while. And like I said, over over the years, everyone just fizzles out, and it just got to the point where I was just running the place by myself, essentially. But ultimately, still having to like take into account opinions of people who like had message board accounts but didn't even go to shows. So I got fed up with that. I, you know, I volunteered and did that for like five or six years, maybe. And basically just reached a point where I got approached by, you know, a promoter that does things on like an actual professional level and just basically noticed me for my work, brought me into their fold, did that for a while. You know, that definitely took 80 you, hours. When you were, when you were doing this, um, the changeover had to be significant to go from a DIY space, a hall show, a small bar to working at a bigger platform. Was it interesting? Did you get actually coached or was you, were you fairly familiar with a lot of what was going on at that time? Yeah. I mean, everything happens over time. Like you start off as a stage hand and then, you know, you kind of just go up the ranks. So you're eventually production managing and kind of seeing all the inner workings with booking and, you know, and, you know, keeping in mind, I was working at a DIY well, working. I was running this DIY spot. So I don't think I dealt with a booking agent a single time in my life. You know, at first off, it just wasn't common within hardcore and punk for the most part. Anyhow, like, I mean, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, mid two thousands, maybe even late two thousands, there was like not many bands actually had agents, you know? So 
it was an uncommon notion to me in the first place, but you know, you could reach that next level. So that was definitely an eye opener to be like, Oh wow, there's uh, budgets for stage towels. And uh, this tour manager is going to threaten to cancel the show because the, the green room isn't big enough. Like things like that were just like mind blowing. Right. It's like you hear the stories and it gets made fun of, you know, like all the little like things like, Oh, green M&Ms and all that shit. But you don't think that stuff's real. And if it is real, you assume it's only like kiss and Metallica. And then you find out, no, it's bands that actually sell like 75 tickets. And they're like, they act this way sometimes. So. Oh, it's absolutely that way. I remember. Yeah. As a kid, we had two or three older friends, and they were the ones first getting those contracts from Bay Ridge Talent. And I was like, I don't really think Mabel really needs a, ma- a room with a mirror. Yeah, and it was always yeah. and and like I remember throughout the late '90s, even the early 2000s, promoters who were fucking awesome or crazy, depending on how you want to uh, decide, might actually have the balls to post. A, like a like a photo copy of the fucking contract oh, yeah. at the door to be like, hey, fuck you. This is what your band. This is what the band that you respect is asking for. And 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 to dial it back to what you were saying is, by the early two thousands, it was pretty fucking clear to me, and from traveling and touring, and and still trying to promote that so many bands from this quote unquote suffix core group of folks just didn't have enough people to go and play in front of. So they would use the small hardcore DIY spaces as a, as a, as a stepping stool. Oh, for sure. And and, and, I mean, this goes back from as late as like 1998, seeing these people that were playing metallic stuff or or just playing shit that was like off putting, but they're like, Oh, this is where we got to go. And they were exactly what you're saying. Like, Oh, I can't believe you guys don't have monitors. Well, this place holds 60 fucking people. Where do the monitors go? Yeah. And so, yeah, I I can only imagine the shenanigans when you're at a level where at that time, yeah, people are going to come through town and be upset about the most stupid small things when really, as you said, with the 75 persons, like if your band isn't bringing in numbers, you should be happy anyone shows up and pays a look at you. Yeah. And, you know, it's I mean, that is like the lowest, cheapest tactic in the book is the whole like using hardcore as a stepping stone kind of thing it's been done so many times that i I can smell it from a mile away at this point you know but um yeah i never really had much experience with that prior to working for that promoter because you know i basically just booked my friend's bands you know everything was handshake deal everything was you know whatever so i knew that maybe existed but i and it just also wasn't as common then as it is now but yeah, it's definitely, uh, it was definitely an eye-opening thing. That was probably the biggest difference uh, I noticed. It, but I will say on my end, it was like I was getting then paid for basically the same, if not less work than what I was doing for, like I said, five or six years for Roboto projects for like basically still being treated like a piece of shit by some of those people. So yeah, I don't know. That was cool. Did you ever get, did you ever get the moment of burnout where you had to step away or... Yeah, I did that until I think about 2015, somewhere in there. Uh, I it was kind of a combination of things. I mean, I was I was no joke. I was doing this shit six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. Definitely became my life. Um, but my grandparents were getting older, not doing well. I wanted to prioritize spending time with them, which looking back was definitely the best decision I ever made. 
I, I snapped one day. I, I tried to get a tour manager to fight me. And I was like, like literally acting like I was in prison or something. I was being so insane with this guy. Uh, and that was when I was like, you know what? I'm just quitting. This, this world isn't for me. Now, I know you were um, at least semi-involved enough to be, I would say, like the mentor to bring the world code. What are your first uh, interactions? Can you recall meeting Jamie and that gang? Yeah, of course. You know, I, I hate to ever come off like I'm taking any type of credit for anything. No, 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 no. We're not going yeah. there. But, I mean, he he really he really gave you a lot of love on this podcast. That's what I'm asking you. Yeah, no, for sure. They, uh, that's, you know, no one can ever take that away from that band. Like they, they never forget where they came from. I was there. I saw it firsthand, like the horror stories I could tell you about some of their first tours. And it's like shit that no, no sane person would like want to continue to keep doing, you know? Cause you know, there were certainly things I would, uh, I would see things and maybe chime in some advice here and there it was maybe a 50, 50, some of some they would take some, they would know better. Right. You know, which, uh, you know, still to this day, I love that about our dynamic. Right. And cause sometimes they do know better. Right. So, but ultimately, man, they, they went out, they did shit that I wouldn't even do like shit. I wasn't crazy enough to do and they would do it and they would push through it and keep going and wanting more and basically signing up to do it all over again the next month, you know? So I, I admired that in them. I could, I could, uh, I could smell the, the fight in them, you know? So I was so, definitely down to help cultivate that for them. So when you saw them though, like the first time, like before, were they, did they show up with a band or did they just show up as kids? Like, like what I came mean, first? I knew, I knew them as the kids that were, you know, coming to every show and moshing awkwardly. Right. You know? But then, you know, found out, oh, they have a band. And then they actually, they landed a gig opening for the Misfits when I was still doing that production managing stuff. I was still going to shows on my nights off at the DIY spots, you know, keeping my, keeping my radar out and make, keeping tabs on everything. So I kind of knew they had something going on, but then, you know, I actually got to see them and they played there and, you know, I was like to lovingly give them shit because they would like break all the rules and then somehow still sneak it back into the venue. So even though we had to enforce it, I thought it was cool, you know? Now, so, so when they started a band, the way Jamie put it is that you, you were basically like the curator, like, look, if you guys are going to do this, this is how you do this. Maybe, I mean, maybe just a little tips and tricks here and there, but I mean, they were already like, uh, very determined to take over the world, you know, I think they were a band for like two years before I even really, truly, you know, started hanging out with them and whatever, you know, I know that, so, I, I know that because they're big, you're, you're trying to be as like, you're not trying to take any credit, but like they gave, like they already gave you the credit on this podcast. Like, like you, you helped them with the fucking, you helped them with traveling. You were on the road with them, you know, like that's the stuff that I think really sets you apart from a lot of people because yeah, it's easy when a kid shows up and he's got a band, but you really went the distance really truly went the distance with these guys and gal for getting them placed in the proper position to really push forward. And I don't know too many folks specifically that would, you know, go beyond what they, what, what's easy to do 
for a bunch of local kids. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but at the same time, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't see that they were actually like working for it themselves. Right. You know, like if I felt like they were going to like take anything I suggested or told them and basically just tell me to fuck off and do whatever they wanted. Anyhow, I would just be like, not bother. Right. But yeah, like I said, I, I, I could, I could sense that they, they really wanted to give it a run. So I figure, you know, make their lives a little easier, you know, like, share little things you know basic shit like i wasn't i wasn't writing their music i wasn't doing their artwork or you know booking their shows they were doing like the hard shit i was just like hey here's how to not fucking blow up your transmission here's how you fucking make sure you don't break down halfway through a tour like you know the shit like that here's how you save a hundred bucks a night on a hotel or whatever so yeah maybe little shit like that when uh when they were when they were first going before the whole thing really started coming together, was this a different iteration of the music or was this like what we would eventually hear when they first started moving out this way? Oh, they were still fucking flopping around on the ground with no clothes on. So yeah, it was definitely a little different. Uh, that's awesome. I know. Uh, I think they booked the first tour before having any type of transportation idea figured out. I fucking so, love it. I fucking, that's exactly what punishment did. Like I will figure I, this out. Yeah, I could be mistaken, but I believe they maybe came to me like, hey, man, we have a like a week long tour book next month. Uh, none of us drive and we don't have a vehicle. What, <laughs> what do you got for us? That's so cool. I mean, something like that. But I mean, but that's what makes them special. And that's what makes you special. You know, they because they had this chaos in them and this drive to do it, but no one the fucking put that chaos in motion in a direct, in a positive direction. And here you are, you sound like, um, like a bitter sergeant from a fucking Vietnam war. Like, come on kids. I'll fucking show you. Yeah. Maybe I got to live a little vicariously through them or whatever, you know, I would, uh, cause you know, we did our, we did our time on the road and decided it wasn't really the life for me, but, um, so yeah, it was cool to see someone that still had that, uh, level of drive, you know? Now, what is going on in Pittsburgh as this, as these guys are coming up and through? I would say that was the low point. I, I actually think uh, this is the low point of uh, not forever. Cause I haven't been around forever, but for the amount of time that I was going to shows, I will say that the least interested I was in what was going on musically, socially, whatever kind of all across the board, but definitely in Pittsburgh uh, was that like maybe late 2000s, early 2010s. I I was still doing my fest every year. It was my little like give back to the world, doing like a free fest for everyone because I maybe felt guilty that I couldn't book all the shows or whatever. So when did you like, first start that Sincerity Fest? Uh, 2007 was the what first. Was the, what, was the, what was the impetus for that? Uh, well, This Is Hardcore was the only fest you started in 2006 and that yep. was like, I mean, I, I came up, you know, Hellfest era, you know, I actually never went, but there was furnace fest and all the other things going on back then. But regardless, you know, I, that was, I thought that was an awesome kind of thing in hardcore that I thought was kind of unique. I mean, it was, I mean, now it's become this thing that, you know, you know how the fest circuit is now, but yeah, it was kind of uniquely hardcore. It was like, see everyone at least once a year kind of thing. And, that obviously died out for a few years until you started doing it again. And then that was like, I was like, Oh, I, I actually, that was a, this is a vital part of hardcore that I miss. 
So yeah, that was kind of, I guess, the impetus for wanting to do that. Having started it at a low point, what do you think that you did to try to bring any energy to it? Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but that era was like all the bands that I grew up thinking were cool were now trying to get on Ozfest, and everyone was kind of getting just very generic and metal and selling out and being lame. Yeah, I'll say it. So, I'll say it. Yeah, it was selling well, out and being lame. Yeah, so you know, I don't need to name any names, but if you were around, we all know who we're referencing. But um, yeah, so I mean, the name Sincerity Fest—that was what we called it. Yeah, it was like we're only going to bring in bands who are cool with no agents, you know, bands that are still just like want to come out and fucking have something to say and not just, you know, being, yeah. Like what I just described, right. Trying to like make it. So that was definitely the beginning of it. And yeah, it was, it was basically bands that I felt were underappreciated in most other cities. I think a lot of those bands would concur that it, basically it's like whatever hometown they were from and sometimes not even that and then pittsburgh would be kind of the only places that they would basically get the pop that you know they would get here so things like that it was kind of just like a little shout out to the underdogs and honestly just a way for me to see the bands that i wanted to see that most of the bands we would bring out weren't like touring bands or whatever you know now uh ty had Listed so many fucking Western PA towns. In fact, I blew he, the, the surprise of the night for me was when he said the punks of Tawny had shows. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, it made no fucking sense. But that was in a short period where uh, Planet of the Apes had closed. Uh, we weren't fucking with Roboto. Lago was closed. We didn't really have access to like a whole lot of options in Pittsburgh. So yeah, I booked. Marauder, E-Town, Agents of Man, Hoods. Were you were you Bonnie able Boone. just to connect? How, how did you pull that off? Were you able just to get, get in with the town people and connect with the local venues? Like the what were what were the ways that you could pull your weight from Pittsburgh into places like Ponxatani? And where else did you book beyond that? I mean, there were kids that built the shit up. They built the foundation out there. Our, you know, our mutual friends, Justin and Chad, and you know, they were booking the local shows. But oh yeah, the Clearfield guys. Okay. Well, these are Punxsutawney guys, but yes, oh. thing, you know, Clearfield. Oh, yeah, like you just said, there's a million fucking weirdo towns out here. The craziest thing ever is I was actually in Punxsutawney this morning, which I hadn't been there in years. But that's a, it's another story. I was actually I literally drove past the venue that <laughs> we're having a conversation about right now. But um, yeah, just two-hour drive into the middle of fucking nowhere. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the, they were great. I mean, the show, they had a little little scene out there. We basically would just bring the legit, you know, touring bands out there because we didn't have a venue in Pittsburgh at the time. And the match made in heaven. Yeah, shows would do well. There's like 200 people for like, you know, hoods in the middle of nowhere on a Tuesday night. So what more can you ask for? But, you know, as with most things, there's, there's shelf lives, shelf lives on that kind of stuff lasted a year or two. And, you know, most small town scenes are like that, right? It's like the kids get into it because it's this new crazy thing. And then they realize, uh, they, you know, never mind. I just want to ride dirt bikes, actually. Well, that's what I was going to say. It actually just enamored me more with the Western Pennsylvania culture because so much of Eastern and even Southeastern and Northeastern Pennsylvania 
was based on fire halls, DFWs, and different halls. I mean, there was Scarlet Sahara in Bethlehem. Uh, before my time, there was the Airport Music Hall in Reading, and uh, not in Reading, in Allentown. In Reading, there was Unisound before my time. Mm-hmm. But aside from the city venues, the the mainstay of really good Pennsylvania hardcore shows where we were from were in you know halls, you know, like um, you know VFWs, um, the uh, what is it, the uh, the Foreign Legion, you know, like all these mm-hmm. different places where where so many amazing shows would happen, and it's exactly what you're saying. the The lifespan was so minimal that it was kind of exciting because in some fucking way, this is where this, you better go now. Cause this fucking place ain't going to be open, you know, like, and it made people from Philadelphia have to travel outside of the city and, you know, go, you know, past Stroudsburg into the, the fucking, you thought it was the fucking winterlands. It wasn't even all the way Northeast, you know, getting, but, getting cultured. Thanks to beat down hardcore shows. Yeah. Like legit. Film. Well, it was legitimately, it was like, you know, the clubs, the cl- I mean, even with, even with CCs and a, and a few places scattered, it was still important to go to. It was still really important to go to these places because, especially if it was a promoter you were friends with or a band. I mean, way before Chris Mahmood would own Reverb, we would go out to venues that he would uh, do. And then when Top of the Rock, which is top of the Reading Outlet Centers, he was doing still doing fire hall shows. I mean, we would go out, he was bringing all out war to um, Pennsylvania. Long before they came out with the fucking first the the first big LP, yeah. So these fire halls really are important all the way across the board. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's an insane thing. I mean, looking back, I don't know how anyone that owned any of these places would be would be okay with you know allowing a second show to happen after they see a first one. But hey, maybe they needed money just as bad as everyone else. I, I I I can't believe, and this is like, for me, I can't believe I walked into a VFW in our neighborhood, which was crazy at the time, at 17 years old and convinced a war vet that I can give him $175 and everything was going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a venue that is basically built with insanity in mind, and I sometimes have these kids come off the street, you know, with some insane idea that they want to, like, rent out and use my place for it. I'm like, absolutely not. You're insane. <laughs> so these guys, they just got this fucking room and you know, they let whatever fly. Like that's, that's insane. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's definitely fucking special. Yeah. Um, so getting back on course here, you're doing sincerity fest code orange is slowly starting to be more, but um, so where are you, where are you at in the late two thousands? What's going on in your head? What do you got going on? Yeah, definitely. I'm locked down in Pittsburgh. So like I said, I'm, I'm working for this promoter. So I'm, I'm, ba- I'm not touring, not really doing anything. If I'm basically using my, my quote unquote vacation time to maybe drive them out for a week here or there a couple of times. But um, yeah, I mean, that's mostly it. I mean, they, they went from opening, I think it was 2011 they opened and then 2012 they headlined for, I believe the I am King release show technically or maybe i don't know whatever yeah the years are kind of jumbled to me but whatever it was i just remember within one year they went from the opening band to the headlining band and they were actually helping me book it uh 
you know, at that point they were the ones out there making more friends and having more contacts. And I, at the point, you know, they brought out, you know, incendiary and harm's way and all the bullshit, you know? So it was definitely cool to see some younger kids finally, truly like taking the reins. Like I had really hoped someone would do for years, you know? What about the, uh, what about the eternal sleep guys? Yeah. I mean, they, they more so they, they didn't really book the show so much. They were more so the ones going out, but they were one of the, they were other than code. They were like the first Pittsburgh band to like get any type of, you know, credible label to pay attention to our area. I shit. They were doing the like 10 months a year touring routine for a while themselves, you know, and you know, they started getting noticed by, you know, every time I die and whoever else like bigger bands were taking them out. So yeah, they were, they were they were more the uh, the pioneers out there, you know, kind of showing people what was going on here. What's interesting, and I blame Jamie for this, is that because of those bands and this this late two thousands, early two thousand tens, without the impact that you gave to these guys and the shows that you did, the no retreats, the built upon frustrations. These are the bands that kids all over the country and world now you know they they have like probably like fucking fan fiction stories about these bands because the only thing they know about them is because the um the resurrected love or the the next wave love that came from eternal sleep and co which is directly related to you guys yeah i mean truly no one outside of this area gave a fuck about those bands and if anything pittsburgh was like always like the laughing stock of like being done 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 death metal hardcore you know whatever so i mean no retreat in their earlier incarnation they played out east a lot you know they, they were like kind of a weekend band so they kind of did their thing but build upon build upon only played three shows ever outside of pittsburgh erie once columbus ohio once and wheeling west virginia once like yeah, they played they played with dysphoria. Yeah, yep. So yeah, we, we were I'm on sorry. that we were on that tour when they came through. Yeah, that I'm talking like I guess the second because I don't know, Build Upon had a little run in the late nineties. They kind of went on hiatus, but the, the 2000 shit, which is what everyone knows and loves or whatever. Yeah, that that they never fucking left, basically. They maybe played out a little bit in the nineties. I I don't know actually, because I that was before my time. But yeah, so yeah, it was definitely a thing. It, it was truly just like our thing, you know, whatever. And I'm happy to see them finally getting recognition, but it's definitely mind blowing. Our uh, Ty and I's, I guess, third partner, I guess you'd call him in this venture we're doing right now. He, I don't want to say he disappeared for a while, but you know, he, he wasn't as actively involved with, I guess, our branch of hardcore. We, we, we lovingly, had to break it to him that we we considered him to be a uh jean jacket hardcore guy but he, <laughs> know you know, he he's og he's like he was around for about a decade before us but he still cannot believe that like people outside of pittsburgh give a shit about bands those bands now because you know the last time he checked in they could barely you know get respect outside of like our circle in pittsburgh right you know and uh yeah, we were just like fucking with them. I think I think Sanguasugabog or someone was like staying at the venue one night, and or some, no, I'm sorry, it was Last Wishes, you know, fucking UK whatever. 
they were upstairs and we were like breaking it to our friend Ben. Like, yeah, man, it's like the whole world like knows or cares about this shit now. He's like, there's no fucking way. I was like, dude, I'm going to walk upstairs and I'm going to wake everyone up. I'm going to say, which of you five people know and love build upon and all five of them are going to fucking raise their hand and get all fucking excited. And yeah, we did it. And he like finally believed us. It's such a surreal thing. Yeah. It's funny. If you were like out of it for a little bit to come back, it's like some plot of a movie or something. So uh, obviously you were a very early supporter of this is hardcore. And where did the distro thing really start taking off for you? I mean, I always tell people it was almost like a necessity, even, you know, I can't even fathom trying to get records and albums in the 80s and 90s because it was hard enough in the 2000s still, you know, like we had a pretty cool record store when I was coming up, but like even they, they had metal and punk and they still, I couldn't even get victory record shit there. You know what I mean? So we just kind of viewed it as a necessity and especially with doing our own band, uh, we had a thing called Drain This Blood uh when we were like high school age and that was just our only shot at anyone hearing it or getting a copy was trading with the other bands so it was almost a necessity but i was just a collector and it definitely you know helped basically fund my addiction to collecting so you know started off like that for at least 10 or 15 years it was just whatever money i made i basically just spent it on other records so it started off that way and then actually when i when i kind of you know, I would come and set up at this is hardcore. Uh, I would set up if I was traveling somewhere, I was like, might as well kind of spread the good word. Obviously, as streaming became a thing and you could find anything you wanted on the internet, it became less and less maybe relevant and maybe more just a fun, nostalgic thing to do. But I don't know, I actually end up, I, I found a lot of some of the, I don't want to say best friends, but my favorite people to run into at shows or especially when I go to this is hardcore are the people who every year we, it might be the only time we talk the entire year, but they come up, we talk about records for, I mean, records as in recorded music. Like we're not sitting there talking about colors on vinyl, but we're talking about how much this music meant or this album or whatever. And those are the people that I always feel are like the unsung heroes of hardcore. They're the ones that just, they show up, they pay the money, they may be standing in the back of the room, but they're the ones buying the merch, keeping the gears turning. And they're always the guys that come up and talk about music instead of, you know, trying to network or get their, you know, their stage mosh on film or whatever. So it's like, those are usually my favorite people. So at this point, obviously you don't need to like distro a CD for people to hear it. They can log on their fucking phones and hear it. But like, to me, it's like it keeps those gears turning as far as, I don't know, feeling motivated and passionate about like, wow, this stuff really means something to a lot of people still. And it, it isn't as bad as it seems on Twitter sometimes, you know? Well, I'll counter and say that I think the induction into hard copies because of stuff that you would do with the distro research kids that want to have cds and cassette tapes because now you know that's like recently there's this kid out in the massachusetts he's doing sands of times recording we're trying to re-release demo tapes bob released yeah. demo tapes i think that in the digital world there was the fast trans you know transformation where a band like a built upon we just talked about would become worldwide known 
but there still is those people that are seeking out. Like I have four people that have hit me up. Be like, Hey, do you have old stuff from the nineties? Like the clubber Lang or the first E-Town CD? Like, mm. What the fuck, man? Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Like, what do you do with this? Like in, in a world where everything's so fast, there are people that still focus on these hard copies, you know? Yeah. I mean, I could rant on this even more than about hardcore, but man, I mean, this like streaming, of course it's convenient uh, and you'll never argue against that. But outside of that, man, it's, uh, it's subject to being censored. It's, you know, like someone can snap their fingers and make everything one life crew related disappear from the internet. Like, it sucks. Uh, I think uh, I think the, the power is in the the physical product because you can't, you know, unless you send the Gestapo around to confiscate everyone's copies of something, it's still going to exist. You know, it, 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 you're not subject to. I mean, I've had my music videos, like some genuinely harmless videos, pulled from YouTube. Uh, Pat the Misery had a music video one time that had a bunch of like civil rights footage it was obviously you know a song that was kind of about how horrible you know all the shit those people that were fighting for those rights were subjected to and someone fucking like reported it to youtube and said it was violent imagery because it was like you know cops beating black people in the 60s you know and it got taken down so it's just shit like that it's just so whack it, it will never be cool it will never be punk it's just it just sucks well I'll say one thing and touch in on the One Life Crew thing. If someone tells somebody in hardcore, you're not allowed to do this or this isn't okay, it almost becomes a thing where someone's going to push back and go, why can't I do this? Or who the fuck are you to tell me? That's and me personified. <laughs> that? That's me personified. Yeah, like legitimately. Like, yeah. you know, um, I think... The 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 grown up way, which obviously no one takes, and I agree a thousand percent with what you're saying, is when someone takes the time to try to remove access. You're they're only making whatever limited control they can on the situation, just make it look cooler, or push people to go. Well, why can't I listen to this? Or you know, like, and you know, regardless of whether or not the people disagree with someone's shit. They just make it easier for people to go, Hey, I want to check this out or you can't tell me what to do. There's a little, yeah. there is something really fucking cool about that. Um, when you were doing paths of mystery, what did you have a thought process to like, this is why I'm doing it or was it just for fun or did you get bullied into doing it? Yeah. Path of misery was definitely my, it was almost, I guess a response to, like I said, that that era, we started in 2006 and we're kind of, well, I mean, somewhat active as with most projects I do, maybe 2013, 14, somewhere in there. But um, yeah, I mean, that was when metalcore was like a dirty word, you know, rightfully so. I mean, the shit did kind of suck at that point. I think metalcore was like borderline embarrassing until Code put out uh, I Am King. I actually remember when they played me the the, the demos or pre-production or whatever the fuck it was. Maybe it was even the actual record. But I remember being like, well, I actually like this. So that's probably a bad sign. That probably means everyone else is going to hate it, you know? So I was like, you're either going to like revolutionize hardcore music or you're going to blow, you know, all this hype that you currently got, you know, because they had already had the one album on Death Wish or whatever. So 
and yeah, it actually it was it was the former. You know, it was like next thing you knew, every single band was doing the fucking dissonant riff mosh parts again, and whatever. So yeah, we were doing the metalcore thing when it was if not popular. It was definitely the era of the trapped under ice and the throwback hardcore stuff, which is fine. But there was zero market, I guess, for what we were doing. So we mostly stayed regionally. But yeah, it was definitely my, uh, you know, homage to the 90s stuff. Also trying to do the, I guess, I hate to use the word political, but yeah, it was a, it was an opinionated band for sure. But yeah, that was that was something we I managed to squeeze in when I was kind of doing all the concert production stuff for the most part. Now, I, I really like that you touched on the code stuff because when I saw what code was doing, Obviously, it even got as far as to get one of the connoisseurs and, you know, what do you call them, pioneers and fucking uh, of of the entire metallic hardcore world in Jake Bannon's and Converge and Deathwish and interested. I feel like Code Orange, they were the ones who stepped out of line first in that new wave of shit. And they were exactly as they brought those dissonant chords back. They made that shit very popular very quickly. Oh yeah. I feel as if throughout throughout their whole thing, they've always been the ones like out in front making shit happen and then other people coming behind and taking what they do because they've now what the kids call normalized it. Now that it's normalized, we'll take over it. We'll take over from here without giving the credit to the fact that when code first started. You know, they really had to press themselves on the people and endear them by just playing constantly. And I see, you know, not a history was rewritten, but Code definitely did a lot of shit ahead of a lot of people who are now um, making a living off of it. Yeah, receiving the fucking fiscal rewards of it. Yeah, very coincidentally, I, not to bring up wrestling again, but. You know, when I scroll on Facebook, it listens to me and it must it knows I have some type of, you know, remaining interest in ECW and all that shit. But they showed me some clip of Paul Heyman, some shoot he was doing. And uh, yeah, he just pointed out. He's just like ECW went bankrupt and the Attitude Era made billionaires. Right. It's like you do it first. You're ahead of your time. There's no reward for that. If anything, you're almost like sometimes, you know, cast out. For but um yeah, I mean, they definitely uh, they definitely created something that a lot of people are making a lot of money off right now. So uh, when we're talking about this stage, this is still when you are, would you say you're one foot in and one foot out? Or did the rise of code make you more interested in what was going on locally? Uh, I mean, yeah, like I said, I was, I was still doing my fest every year. I mean, compared to, I was, I had, you know, there's some some type of like insane hardcore guilt I self-impose on myself. I mean, I was still going to more shows than like probably most people do per year, but to me, it felt like this huge step down from, you know, living it 24 seven, but, um, so I was still around, still doing the stuff, but yeah, they, you know, seeing, seeing recognition finally being given i mean you were throwing these bands the pittsburgh bands on the fest before anyone else was seeing finally some type of like uh like we talked about earlier turn sleep doing stuff and whatever 
uh, it was cool. It was definitely like invigorating to some degree, you know, I was, uh, it was fun. I, I started, uh, I, at the beginning of the podcast, you, you referred to what I was doing is preserving silence, which is correct. That is what I was doing at the time. Uh, but actually we, that's around the time we renamed it to preserving hardcore. Cause I wanted to really focus in on specifically hardcore. Um, uh, I was, you know, I would always distro whatever, you know, it was always pretty open-minded musically with that stuff, but that's when I was really doing all the archiving of all the old show footage that I had. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, it was definitely when it decided to really switch gears and focus hyper specifically on hardcore. That was when I started formulating this idea of like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'll just do a brick and mortar thing, which is, you know, obviously what I did after uh, my grandparents passed, decided it was time to start, uh, you know, having fun in life again. So, um, yeah, that, and, you know, kind of brainstorming on the idea of doing like museum and the archive and all this shit. So yeah, I, you could say that that, seeing all that stuff and also hard, hardcore did start taking a move into the direction of stuff that I was more interested, always historically more interested in too, which is the heavier metallic side of things for sure. I, uh, I apologize for the, uh, the misbranding. I, um, no, you were right. I mean, that is what it is originally. I think um, there's something you're, that you're OG for your own good. There is something to be said about when you're, already on a page but then you go deeper and deeper i think that's what happened is you kind of you know the distro turned into exactly what you said like well maybe i can do more here and i can do more there um because obviously we've had enough private conversations about the church and what would happen i'd rather you walk through the public on like where this where these ideas become reality and where you're Sitting there being like, fuck it. It's COVID. I'm getting me a church. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> to oversimplify, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of it. I don't know. I, I operate on spite. So when I see things I don't like or I see things being done poorly, I feel some type of obligation to do it better or do it to like take shit away from the people who are like abusing it, you know? So I guess if you're asking, if you want a little transition into how I'm doing what I'm doing now, you know, I think the year, maybe the years leading up to 2020 and the whole shutdown thing, we were just seeing like all the tours that we wanted to see going to like all the whack venues around Pittsburgh that, you know, historically, you know, at, at minimum bullied out kids, but at work at its worst times arrested our friends and, you know, things like that. So, you know, our generation was always very like, you know, standoffish and hesitant and resistant to these places. But these younger kids that didn't basically grow up through the fucking the war you know, they, they don't have any problem with these places. So they just fucking go happily. And to them, it's normal to just let some bouncer like beat your friend up and drag him out in front of you and whatever. And I don't know. I, the, the terror song, uh, not this time, those lyrics are like, they almost perfectly summarize, you know, I get it's, it's like our, my, my war cry basically 
and just fucking sick of seeing everything get diluted to the point where it's not even recognizable, you know? So that was definitely part of the motivation to like, like I said, just do it, do it myself, ourselves, do it better, whatever it may be. Um, yeah, just, you know, can from there, just keep growing it, realizing, like looking for ways that you can make it better and looking for opportunities. And I don't know, it's just maybe at the root of it is just never being satisfied. I don't know. That might be some, something I should talk to a therapist about maybe. I don't know. I think, it, I think you follow things to a natural course, you know, it's naturally going to be something when, the, from my perspective, here you are in the, in the true trenches, as Matt Carl would say, you've been in the yeah. trenches for a year going ahead and, you know, not only go back to your other term, you know, you're preserving hardcore and, and pursuing it in the DIY way. And yet he, when it's starting to really grow, and other people are taking the notice, you know, it, it is important for someone to step up and go, you know, hey, you're not getting away with controlling all this now that it's grown, you know? Yeah. I think it's admirable instead of sitting back and going, oh, these fucking shows are at the big room now. We can't get nothing going. It's awesome to see you say, fuck you, I am the big room. Yeah, that's a good way. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, you know, that's, ultimately... my, pers- that's my perspective on it. I look at like you were like, Look, we didn't just build all this the fuck up so you guys can come in and take it over. Yeah, because it really is what happened. You know what I mean? Like uh, most of the issues, I'll spare everyone the details, but a lot of the issues we had with these venues was when people would finally convince them to uh, be so gracious to allow a hardcore show to happen there. And then it happens there and they realize, like, oh, wait a minute, this is actually more profitable for us than the stupid fucking indie show or whatever, you know, punk show that we used to book. And then they just basically swipe in and, you know, these agents that have no loyalty send it straight to these venues and cut out the the DIY aspect. And yeah, so yeah, it is definitely like a strike back against all that. And I mean, it's working and we're almost instantly, you know, they, I'll put it to you this way as, as, as often as we want to, take it back it's happening you know we're we're scaling up at a pace where we're making sure that we're not uh getting lost in our own show so we want to make sure that we're like we're basically pacing ourselves cautiously to make sure that we're not over committing and getting to the point of being the guys that suck because you know we're not putting enough attention to each show that it deserves but yeah, I mean, the, the bands play here once. They realize they don't want to play the other venues in Pittsburgh ever again, and it, it's happening. So, yeah, it, it feels good to know that, like, I don't know, for, for once, you know, righteousness prevails or whatever, you know? Well, I think it's dedication. I think, you know, you're you're being far too humble for the efforts that you put in and the culmination of them over time, you know, uh, when I look at what you've done in your life's work with this stuff, I see <laughs> complete mistakes. Like, fuck, I wasted all this time. We should have been investing and reinvesting in ourselves because the same things happen here. The same things happen here where we don't have control of what happens. I'm lucky that I get to do the underground arts, which is a 650 cap room, which is the next available size room for a hardcore band after they've proven that they can sell out the church at a hundred yeah. tickets less. 
And then because of the relationships I have through the electric factory, which then be bought by AEG, the, I still have a good relationship with Sean Agnew, who's one of my original mentors and, you know, my partner for six years of this is hardcore that if a band would selling 1200 tickets, I'm still involved in some capacity in the promotion yeah. of a band. But in, in the minute you fucking did what you did, I was like, God fucking retards. We've been like, why didn't we just stack yeah, this like, money? <laughs> I'm like literally you going, you're, you're like, stuff. to me, to me, you're like a mad scientist. Like, <laughs> like fuck man. And I am, but you're also being too hard on yourself because dude, it's, it's a totally different dynamic. You're in fucking Philadelphia. Like, you can't buy property there like the way I did. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, you're in a real city. It's like there's real like cutthroat competition with property and real estate and all that shit. It's not as simple as like, you know, I guess my one piece of business advice to anyone is just like, just be willing to go to a dangerous part of a city. You know what I mean? Like, which in Philly, that's probably still expensive, but you know, out here we, yeah, we are outside of Pittsburgh, you know, we're 20 minutes from downtown, which people act like it's the other end of the planet, but ultimately it's not Pittsburgh proper, but that's what you have to do because even Pittsburgh is now becoming this like UPMC, Google and Uber only basically. So, you know, who's buying a property. So yeah, you basically just have to be willing to, to move out into the hood. I got to tell you though, you know, um, for those who've, those who are just listening without visualizing. So preserving hardcore is on the corner of a block. And it really still is a church in the sense of the way the building was built. So you walk in these steps and it looks like what could be a church. Only you step up. You, is it step down to the record store to the left is to the bottom left steps. So it a- it's, it's split level. The, the, the preserving underground which probably where you have been rooms downstairs and then upstairs is the record store which it pretty much has been since i bought the building but as of you know i believe march of this year um we opened up the actual chapel which you're talking about that physically looks like a church um that's now our like 800 cap venue that we kind of just really kicked things up into in the last few months yeah, so like, and then there's like a third floor that has, you know, what sometimes is an Airbnb, sometimes is a place that I hook bands up and let them stay. And yeah, it's kind of an all in one stop shop, I guess. Yeah, like, uh, we got lucky that you had the record store open, you were working on the venue, and you were so kind to give Shadow Realm a place to stay that night when Code did their first show back after the pandemic. I should also say, shout out to the OG preserving because we were invited when that one or two weeks where somehow Pittsburgh went green and you're like, yo, we're allowed to do shows out here in Pittsburgh. And I'm like, you know it, we're coming out. Fuck this. <laughs> oh, we weren't green. We just decided we were doing it, but <laughs> um, yeah, that was in the original spot, which was, yeah, as you know, but for anyone listening, we actually, our first year was in the basement of the magistrate building, which is psychotic, but Yo, but it's so cool. Like right year. across, right across from the police station. No bullshit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I would. Um, I would say that it takes not only a lot of dedication and time. It takes a lot of different skills to get to where you guys are at. And now look at what you're like. Look at all this accomplishment. 
It's a weird a little if, bit of luck. Well, all things considered, if you again, if you place yourself in the proper position, the right things around you happen. And you know, you're gonna have ups and downs regardless of the good that happens. But just being in that right position will always allow you to just kind of bounce off and get things going. And if you if you're if you're susceptible to it. And I think, you know. I know for myself, I think about opportunities I didn't take or opportunities I thought about and was like, ah, it's too far reaching out. But the fact that you reach so far out there to think that you now have an 800 and what's the basement three or four? 300 since we rearranged it. Yeah. You have, you have, you have the two, you have the two best size rooms for doing hardcore 800 because it pretty much means, especially for Pittsburgh, like, Argumentatively, if if Haybreed had the gall to do it, they could play in fucking, they could play it at preserving. Oh but, yeah, you know, they could, they could for sure. You know, like it gives you those the dual the dual rooms. You know, like this is a fucking perfect scenario. Um, when you say Airbnb for those who toured, for those who may not think about it, AJ has basically like what I felt. It was total European style, like extra bedrooms so people can go ahead, get a shower, go to sleep. It was very, very fucking accommodating and very fucking cool that you even thought to use that space that way. Yeah, I don't know. Stuff like that, to me, was like one-on-one shit. It's actually shocking to me how uncommon that is these days. FaceRec did the tour in 2019, whatever year you had us on This Is Hardcore, to go out and promote it. And I think there was like one promoter that like offered us a place to stay. And keep in mind, I hadn't booked a tour in like a long time. And a lot changed apparently, but I've never toured Europe. But from my understanding, that's like that's standard procedure over there, basically. No, I I think that what happens is that for those who just are concerned with booking the show, there isn't the other thought. But one of the best things about touring Europe specifically is the thought process of the accommodation side, because the European tour bookers. That comes hand in hand. It's not like, hey, in America, it's like, hey, here's your show. Here's your five bottles of water, unless you're the headliner, then we give you whatever we're supposed to in the contract. In Europe, yeah. it's in Europe's like, here's your tour, here's your driver, here's your gear, here's your van, here's where you're gonna sleep every single fucking night. And yeah. you know, I, I I got lucky enough to be a part of MAD touring. So they really take care of you to the point where we've gotten woken up and, hey, we're all going to go to the bakery downtown for your breakfast. It's like, yeah. dude, what a beautiful fucking world that the European hardcore scene has. And I think that you added an, a special touch because it shows that you give a fuck. You know, it's it's amazing. Um, so we kind of were so deep into the preserving side. Uh, dude, and, and this is, as the kids would say, no cap. I'm so out of touch. I don't even know what the fuck that means. No cap means no bullshit. You know, okay. I'm not kissing your ass. Uh, face wreck is possibly one of the most unique, entertaining aspects of your entire world because you're pretty straightforward um, and you're pretty on the dot when it comes to talking about music. But there's something that fucking comes out of you when you grab that cordless mic and the videos, the songs, it's absolutely insane that the person that I can talk to for hours about hardcore and shit has this like performance side 
in when you when face wreck comes on it it's just it blows my mind that you have this in you yeah i can have fun every once in a while you know is it so so where does this come from like where what inner side of like where did you decide like hey i'm gonna fucking do this yeah so face wreck's an interesting one to explain actually i've I thought to myself several times, I mean, I've done some podcasts and, you know, obviously similar questions come up and I don't know. It's, I, I sometimes think how much do I want to reveal? I'm going to tell you right now, I'll I'll reveal more on the, this is hardcore podcast than I will most others, but ultimately we'd be spending a few hours if I was really going to try to convey my insanity on that aspect. But I guess the important part is, is I fucking face wreck is kind of like realizing that you love hardcore, but you've seen a bunch of bullshit and stuff that, you know, is bullshit over the years. And you like, I don't know how to put it. It, It's, you know, people on the surface maybe think it's some type of like parody or like joke band, which I fuck. I hate like good, clean fun and like all the not funny like parody fucking bands like it's it's not that it's just it's just lighthearted maybe like fun i don't know how to put it but it's like you know how many fucking bands i've seen get on stage and talk about being hard that are literally some of the softest dudes i've ever seen in my life you know what i mean like you're preaching to the choir here i love hearing that from you yeah you know better than i you know crazier people than i do and you know Sure, you don't. There's no prerequisite for being hard to be in hardcore, but you know, historically, you know, maybe you were playing music that was maybe more sounded maybe more like uh, Boy Sets Fire, you know. But now, you can be, you know, uh, a smaller dude than I am, uh, you know, whatever, and you can get up there and play this hardest music of all time, and somehow people believe it. I, I <laughs> You know, I, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, but my point is, is like, that is the music I love. That is what I, I guess I'm naturally inclined to perform, but I'm, I just can't lie to anyone. I'm not going to get on stage and sing songs about how I'm going to fuck you up. If you, if you betray me or whatever, you know? So I don't know. It's just what I, I got to talk about other shit. I can't get up there and sell a lie to anyone. So I, I don't know. It's somewhere in there. There are some layers to it that I, I would, it would take me longer than anyone wants to listen to, to try to fully explain it. But in general, we're guys that just like the music. We we're all, you know, Randy has moshed for more bands in more backwoods towns in Pennsylvania than anyone on this planet. We're just dudes that live it and love it and support it. And we're having fun with it. I always wondered if it was a, and, and I'm glad you put that out there. That it's it, there's almost like a again, you're you're a huge rebel. I don't know if you realize that, but you you're always it's it, been made well able, me, Yes, you really do push back constantly. It's like your whole thing is like pushing back. Like, oh, it's going to be this way. Well, fuck this. I'm doing this. Yeah, it's and, such a pain in the ass. I fucking hate it. No, it's actually awesome because it used to be that way. You know, like. Everything used to be, everyone used to be like me. Everyone used to be a pain in the ass. Now yeah. everyone's fucking a politician. Well, and that because of the fact is tomorrow, if you say the thing that you feel and it isn't congruent with everybody else's thought, 
no one is strong enough to stand on their words, stand on their thoughts. Everybody wants to be still loved and accepted. And, and, and this is where the this is where the the train comes off the tracks here. It's not saying the thing that's hurtful or mean or wrong, but it's saying like, no, this is how I fucking feel about it. People today aren't comfortable living in the hardcore space. And yeah, you know what? Like what you said, good, clean, fun. There was not a lot of really good, clean, fun things. They were kind of like nerd mean about shit, you know, yeah. like they were nerd mean. And, and that was a lot of that posse scene at the time. And a lot of that goofball shit at the time yeah. It was like, we get to make fun of you, but if you say something in person, we don't know how to handle it, and we get fucking shook. Yeah, and, exactly. I, and I and I grew up around that. I grew up around dickheads. Yeah, it seemed to be a thing in like Philly and DC and that whole area. Yeah, it, it, and it, and it lasted so few because all these fucking dudes who were died in the paint. They knew ever they would almost drill you on what do you know about this band and that band. So it got to the point where coming from what I came from. I wasn't going to let them walk up to me and start being like, well, you don't even know. It's like, no, well, I also know. Luckily, I was around a lot of the old Bad Luck 13 dudes who just like the psychopath Kev one. These crazy dudes were in this crazy other shit. The secret is they still love fucking hardcore, and they knew so much about hardcore punk that just yeah. being around them and listening to them talk, you immediately were like learning every time you just overhear a conversation with these guys. Yeah. You know, like... And it put it put that into me, but I think that face wreck feels so fucking fun, and there's a lightheartedness that's gone from hardcore because, like you said, to have fun means to not be taken seriously. But I can't take some of these fucking kids seriously when they get on stage and they're they look like they're a hundred and fifty pounds lighter than they need to be to say in some of the goofy shit that they say on the stage, and it's like, brother, this is the fucking joke band. Yeah, you know, like exactly. the bad graffiti lyrics, the I mean the bad graffiti, the crappy lyrics, like it's and granted, it's so bizarre for me to say this because what the fuck was I doing from the time I was 18 to 26? You know, like that was like a huge part of the bands that we booked, we played with. Well, but you were actual psychopaths, so it was <laughs> fine. Yeah, so it's just so weird to see some kid who's like 18, like, you motherfuckers better motherfucking fuck fucking. You're like, dude, go to bed. It's like, dude, you you really you will be offended if I say something to you. <laughs> it's so fucking bizarre to me. Well, like you know, do the things to you that typically would happen 15, 20 years ago. You know, yeah, it's 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 awesome to think that this is a motivator for you because I think about it all the time. It's like, you know, whatever happened, just like, and there's almost like a prerequisite now. Like, if you don't have a graffiti logo, or you're not fucking promulgating some form of goofiness these young kids they don't even want it it's like it's it's a larp it's a fantasy so i think the and it and it's not the bands on the stage it's the kids in the crowd the kids who look like fucking even goofier than the kids on the stage you see these kids you're like brother you are really not about it you're not you don't even got your weight up yet like come on you know like so I, i like that that's your approach but yet because of you, because of who you are, even when you're f- not fucking around, but even when you're taking it, you know, it, it's successful. People fucking, the videos are so fucking well done. The, the, yeah, the videos are so fucking well done, man. Like, it's insane. Like, there's so much to be said about the quality of doing something right that you just constantly put into your shit. 
no matter what it is. Like, and, and if it, and I think that's another reason why it's necessary to say like, yeah, it's not a fucking joke because here you are putting time into these fucking, these insanely fucking well-produced videos. It's fucking awesome, man. Yeah. And you know, as maybe as hesitant as I am to accept compliments on other, you hate, you hate praise. You hate compliments. I'm learning this. Yeah. But I will say I, I actually, I do. I somewhat feel a little underappreciated on the face wreck stuff. Sometimes if I'm going to be a little egotistical for a second, dude, you don't have to rewind too far back in your head to remember. There are so many bands now that do the like, pseudo goofy stuff to like get over it's like like the whole like twitter thing like dude i I could go on for an hour which i won't but i will say i just hope people remember who the first band at least in a long fucking time to just have some fucking fun with shit i hope everyone remembers who that was it really does come from pioneers and people who just push forward and everybody else is kind of stuck following after the fact and that's really what this whole thing is. This whole thing is someone's always got to be first. Someone's always got to go ahead and do it out of the what's real for someone to come along and go, oh, that's cool. Or, oh, that's, and then, you know, it was like just like with the E-Town thing. Mind-blowing that E-Town is one of the most popular bands in modern-day hardcore, considering that they had such staunch adversaries in the punk press in the hardcore scene be like who are these guys and now the young kids it's like the young kids finding their older brother shit and being like no this isn't funny this is actually really fucking cool it's awesome to see these 90s bands validated because these bands really were a thousand times more fucking punk rock than some of the goofballs in these bands that were kind of like sly shit talking them because it's got an urban aesthetic or it's not what they're coming from. I always found that very interesting that the minute that something was very street, hardcore punk, whether it was New York, Boston, Detroit, Los Angeles, almost anywhere you went to, unless you were really in the far off suburbs, you know, but even the OC kids in the bands in the seventies, they were dealing with the gangs regardless. They were, they were fucking stuck with a very gang culture oriented shit. 10 years yeah. later, 20 years later, these brats who come around and are trying to memorize records that they've never even had their hands on because they came out in the fucking eighties. Oh, yeah. this is bullshit. This isn't a part of hardcore. It's like, that was a fucking huge part of hardcore. It's always been, a, it's always been a, a, um, an aggravation to see that come, but it's awesome to see the culmination of kids supporting this shit. And I'm glad to see face wreck doing this shit and obviously it's another huge reason why we're like we gotta have face wreck on this is hardcore like we gotta have you guys on the fucking vest yeah and we appreciate that i mean i've told you you're one of the few dudes that we're gonna like leave pittsburgh for you know so you know with what we all do for a living it's hard for us to get together you know we will always make uh certain stops you know something we'll do but yeah we've been we've been averaging two or three shows a year for the past couple which is more than most bands in 2020 at least but um but yeah, the, but before we change any subject, though, it's I, it's ironic that you brought up E-Town Concrete. So what I wanted to point out about them specifically, um, first off, I love seeing that finally, basically, I mean, they certainly had their run. I'm not acting like on their first run, no one gave a shit. You know, they were on a major and, you know, did their thing. 
they were touring with like some pretty big new metal bands, but at least within hardcore, I feel like they're finally getting this like due credit. Right. But you know, to, to really bring it full circle on maybe this whole conversation and out of respect to some other people involved in this conversation, I won't talk details, but man, with code doing their, uh, upcoming, uh, Cold guess, world. Album, yes. Album release kind of thing going on here, dude. Uh, you know, I want to name names, but you know, Jamie's going to be mad if I do, but man, some of these bands, the younger bands, the, the, the shit they were putting code through about, I saw, and this and that. I, I saw all of it. And I actually said this a couple of times on different iterations of the podcast code orange came out looking like gummo in Philadelphia in 2013. Yeah. And by the end of it, they were the band that not only had the balls to say, we're going to go further than this, which is such a bizarre thing at that time, because everybody, it's almost like faking the funk. Like, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to know that I really want to live off this shit. Yeah. When it's like, when it's like that, those guys have always, those guys and gal have always put themselves in the position to be a full time thing so they could just crush the world yet it's always the detractors the people that play off the sentiment of you know we really do this because we love this and we just love playing shows and they're the one with the manager who's yeah complaining that the font that the exactly. flyer isn't right and they're exactly. the one with the agent who knows they're dealing with a diy band or diy promoter but they're pushing for another 20 percent more because they know they could push that to the promoter because they don't want to see that promoter not get the show. And yep. yet Code throughout their entire career did everything themselves, did everything from their heart for their friends, for the people that rode out for them from the beginning. They jumped through hoops just to continue these relationships, which is unfucking known because all the same people detracting be like, God, I can't believe Code is doing this. Code is the first band to push harder. They were the ones that really pushing hard for the roadrunner shit. Those were the ones that said, oh, it's cute. You guys are still going to dress like hardcore kids. We're going to look like some fucking bizarre new metal, modern metal fucking collaboration. I told I told Jamie, I thought, I was like, dude, this is like a fucking scene when Neo's walking through the Matrix to seeing chicks on the couch and shit. Like, he, he, they had the vision and they had the balls to do it. And people had the gall to try to throw some shit their way. And yet you hear in these records that these bands are now doing or all this shit that these bands um, push in their social medias where now they love the the more um, nuanced, lower known techno stuff, industrial stuff, metallic stuff. You know, someone has to walk through fire and then everyone goes, they're going to get burnt. And, and then they follow fucking suit. Code has always been the one to do it. And so it, it sucked to see Jamie go through it. And I, I, you know, you and I have both been privy to a lot of conversations with that cat, you know, like basically telling him like, stay with the fucking program. Fuck yeah. everybody who's detracting you, but looking at it now, you know, code, tell me that that wasn't one of the most captivating moments of the fucking pandemic when you're sitting on a Friday night and you have nowhere else to go. So you watch this video and you're like, how the fuck did these assholes pull this video off? Then you oh, find yeah, out they did 90% of it. They did 90% of it themselves. And you're like, dude, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, they started live streams, which is, you know. Yeah, they started live streaming. Yeah. But 
but yeah, all these opening bands that were like, you know, basically trying to take advantage of that situation and look for this insane payday and put them through hell and back about confirming for this show. And then E-Town, literally the most chill band on the entire thing. I think literally confirmed the show with like an Instagram message. You know what I mean? Like, yo, can we yeah. play this? Cool. All right. Tight. You know what I mean? And they're like arguably one of the bands people are most excited about. So yeah, it, it's it's good to see the bands who were ahead of their time, you know, getting the recognition and still kind of adhering to those ethos, you know, to some degree. So it's very interesting, you know, versus the bands that have been around for literally less than two years, you know, demanding these certain guarantees that like I would literally laugh at them if they asked me for, you know. Well, again, and, and it's a predatorial thing. So what it is saying well, you don't want to lose out on doing them. And the younger, some of the newer promoters, that's how they get sucked into these bigger guarantees that they don't look and go, am I going to make my, am I going to break even one? Because they're afraid of not getting the show and being left out of the situation. And it's one of the things I tell promoters all the time when we have contact. If at a certain point in time, something is brought to you, and you are going to lose money on it. You're only going to be solvent to be able to lose money a handful of times. And it should always be by accident or because you're working with friends and you don't really care if you don't break even on it. But to be a promoter in the DIY world, the less money you lose, no one really makes enough money as a DIY promoter to just knock off and just go, I don't really need a real life. I'm just going to book these shows at these halls. Because there's always the next step and the next step. And all these bands coming through, you know what they're doing? The next step. They're just, oh, you know, right now we'll use you. But as soon as we get up, boom, we're going to get up. Oh, for sure. And I think that that's where the code oranges come in, where they go, this is the person that we worked with. And when we first started, we're not going to give up on them. And it's absolutely fucking fantastic to see, man. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, as far as, what you're saying about how the whole, I mean, the promoters we're working with currently are all cool as shit. They're the ones who are the pioneers and the ones who are, I don't want to say taking a gamble because it's not much of a gamble, but the ones who have faith in us that we're going to like treat the bands appropriately and, you know, do all the right things. So everyone we're working with currently, I got not a single bad thing to say about, but you know, we've, we've been approached by some other agents and blah, 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 who are basically like you said, kind of trying to prey on the fact of like, well, if you don't give us a certain money, then it's going to go somewhere else. Like, okay, we'll let it go somewhere else. And then the show's going to fucking suck, you know? So, uh, you know, we, and you know, we certainly give guarantees when it's our friends bands. Like I said, I'm not sweating it. If I lose a couple hundred bucks to book terror or something, you know, it's, it's almost like, yeah, I'd gladly pay that, you know, to have a good night. So, um, yeah, it, it's important to work with people who respect you, you know, as a promoter and aren't looking to just like basically take advantage of you. Well, that's, that's my, I guess, advice. If we're talking advice to other promoters, it's relationship building, you know, yeah. like even if the band has one show, even this band has one show in your area for six months, you know, if you do the band right, they're going to remember you. And the agent has other bands that they may throw you, but you should never like cut yourself loose of the responsibility to think about this in the long run. If you lose $500 to do one show for a band that you're not all in on, cause you're afraid, Oh, somebody else may get them. 
you might have just disabled your ability to put on a band that you really love that all the kids really love because the show who's going to lose money that's going to lose money because it, it is what it is you know you know when you should know by now or you should have a good idea once you get rolling as a promoter what band is going to fill your room up and what band isn't and i see a lot of younger folks being afraid to be like i'm not the one who get it you have to let and you touch on it perfectly like oh cool yeah send it somewhere else we're where the we're where the band's fans are at right now. So yeah, send them somewhere else. See how that well that works out for them. But yeah. to get to get to that point, a lot of young kids get scared into that shit. So I'm yeah, glad that that's what you're doing. I mean, it's reaching a point where when uh, a tour that should be at our place that doesn't end up at our place for whatever reason may be, I mean, dude, the backlash on like, I mean, I'm not I'm not paying these people to go out and say these things. I mean, dude, you can. Uh, you go read the comments on the, any uh, the venue, other venue, social posts. Everyone's just like, "Wow, not looking forward to this now." Wish there was a preserver. Like it's so, it's becoming so apparent that I don't know, I don't know how any band or agent doesn't isn't wise enough to see that. You know, it may be just some short sighted stuff, like you know, they make a couple extra hundred bucks or you know whatever, but. Uh, my point is, is the bands that and it's interesting. I mean, you can, you know, obviously you and I don't sit around and have conversations about who the cool bands are. And it just happens to be, I notice a lot of the same bands that you end up booking at the church and maybe doing an underplay are the same bands that are coming here and playing these smaller rooms when they could obviously be doing bigger rooms. Like those are the bands that they're, they have been around for 20 years. They have been around for, you know, and staying relevant because they are, still you know i just put i just put the acacia strain over super hard publicly the other day because that that's a band that i don't i don't message them be like, please play my venue you know they they go out of their way they could play bigger spots you know they they make a point to come here they're taking out the younger bands and it's just i think that's the important part is those are the bands i mean we don't want to bring bands in here that don't want to be here you know if, if someone doesn't see the value in what we're doing then let them play somewhere else, you know, whatever, you know, the bands that want to play here are the bands we want here. And it's, it's interesting to me how you can just see it It to, you know, I guess when you have that set of eyes, you can just see it. You see those bands doing the same thing in all the other cities. And yeah, that, 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 that is, I think uh, a pillar of hardcore and that, you know, just bringing it around to everything I was talking about with E-Town, you know, like, Stuff like that. That's the stuff that's motivational for me. I see that stuff, and that keeps me keeps me feeling like I'm I'm fighting the right fight. Well, you know, the thing that happens in a lot of places is the guy who is the guy goes away, and then there's a gap. Generationally, there's gaps all throughout this. I said this about Florida when we used to kill it in Florida. There was always the guy. And then when them guys get beyond it and the next person isn't like mentored or brought in to take it over, there's a gap. And then it goes to shitty rooms or maybe yeah. the whole crowd goes away. Cause Oh, well there hasn't been stuff like this in a while. And you know, it's a bizarre thing saying this when you're talking about shadow realm, a band who didn't tour because of fucking crazy gang activity and arrests and nonsense that it took a long time to go. Eh, is it worth it going back on the road? Is it worth, you know, leaving the East Coast? You know, like, it's truly 99% of why, you know, like, from 06 onward, Shadow Realm didn't do anything American besides a handful of shows was because of the chaos, the chaos of what touring was. And so 
the best thing a hardcore scene can do. And you did it. You said it effortlessly that, you know, like you kind of learned from Roboto project and you took it over and you were always looking for someone to step up, take over part of it, take some ownership of it, make it their own because that's what our jobs are is in our community. Isn't to be the control freak. It's like, you know, trying to hold all the keys to the kingdom. It's actually the opposite. We should always be looking to raise what the next generation needs to know. You know, like I got blessed with Bob Wilson, who's the king. He's I the was going to say, I, I need a Bob Wilson. You'll get one. You'll get. Well, one. he's like my age, but so I need I need Bob Wilson minus five years or something. Yeah, he's he's the fucking king. So who's the next king? Well, we got little Stucky coming around. Yeah, I know we got. Combo, I need a Stucky. Well, and that's really what this hardcore scene doesn't see. It's like there's there's nothing that hurts me if there's Bob and there's Stucky and there's Clemos. Even Alex Bradley takes on some of the metalcore stuff and some of the pop stuff that like I wouldn't even. Not that I, I you couldn't get me to touch it. It's yeah, just, just, it's just one more thing I don't need. Yeah, it was just one more thing I don't want to focus on because I've already got everything else to deal with. You need as a promoter, you need as any kind of thing to, to always be looking to expand who's working in your world so that way there's continuity. Yeah. You know, like um, the people from the Cabbage Collective found the First Unitarian Church. Arguably okay. within the same spirit of time, R5 Productions and Robbie Redcheeks were both sparing, like he was using the First Unitarian Church. Robbie Redcheeks and R5 would link up and do a lot of shows together when they were hardcore influenced because R5 was more of the professional but DIY side, and Robbie was the long term. Hey, he's been around for a couple years doing his thing. We're gonna br- and Sean, who is so magnanimous and so honest and sharing with stuff, it was never like I'm taking this money, get out of here, Robbie. It was like, yeah. oh, let's, let's do it together. I want Robbie's, I want Robbie to be involved. And that's literally how it was the path for me. Sean being like, I was helping out. I was working security. And I was like, yeah, can I start bringing some? He's like, yeah, as long as you can keep these people from fucking shooting each other. Yeah, yeah. you can. Yeah. And then it was like, yeah, you can take on doing this show and you can bring Manball here and you can do this. And then it was like, hey, we just had this crazy Hellfest fall apart. And, you know, you guys pulled this shit off. Want to do a hardcore fest next year? And it's like, yeah, dude, I'll help you. I'll show you how to do it. And I was like, oh, fuck. And I mean, it, it needs to be said that it, it's lost in me now because I'm on the verge of, I'm literally a week from being 43. But at 25 years old, I had it in my mind. Like, I want to do my own festival. I want to do something again. You know, I want to do something cooler that doesn't get as crazy to the point where Hellfest is like, let's rent out a fucking mini stadium and we're going to have public enemy headline. I was like, what the fuck is hardcore about that? Yeah. That's, and none of that would have been possible if Sean Agnew was, wasn't the kind of guy who was like, let me show you how to do this. Let me teach you what I do. You know, that these are the people that I learned from. And so I, I take the same thing on, you know, and I think you're going to find the same kind of situation in front of you where you're going to have someone that you can really show. I mean, if Jamie wasn't such a spectacle of a human with plans that are just so fucking Herculean that you'd be holding him back by asking him to just book shows in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Like he would be obvious, you know, like, and I'm sure there's people all around that need to hear this, like whether they're, they're, they're the us or they're the Jamie's like, that's the other half of what happens is I've seen it from the late nineties, the people whose contacts that I was getting handed down the book shows, 
like uh, Sean from Clear. I hit him up. Hey, we want to play. Dude, I'm not the guy who does shows like that anymore, but here's the next guy. Here's the guy coming up. And it'll be in Blake Ford. You know, and that's like you establish these contacts all over. And you find, I found because we were at the end of the 90s, beginning of 2000s, trying to book our first punishment tours, the guys who my contacts were kind of like, oh, I'm not even really trying to do this no more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they were trying to, sh- or they were like, hey, we don't have rooms anymore. It was a difficult time. So I, I want, I'm glad that we kind of derailed the talk about that because it's something fun for me because I always love hearing from guys like you, like, Hey, I'm trying to find someone to help me here. I'm trying to see who else is going to, and, and the young kids should not jump at the opportunity, but should they perk their ear up and come with the same sense of, you know, humility, not to say, I got this dog, let me handle everything, but like come in, kick the tires around, see how the, see how things work under the hood, start getting involved, doing the small things. I mean, we're blessed where people stay after the last band and go, Joe, Bob, you need me to help clean up anything? Hey, can I help you guys tear down? I mean, it needs to be said, you're, you're a fantastic human. And without your specific entrepreneurial, as much as you don't want to believe it, because you're a fucking psycho, you have this ability with the energy that you put into your scene to have all these extra stuff that is amazing for any city, but especially for Western Pennsylvania and the area where you're at. You know, like you're the kind of person that could show these other people how to do this. You know, like we're lucky to for what we have and, and what you do is a is a trait. It's a it's a it's a fucking thing that you could you could take these skills into any place, but it's awesome that you've put it into hardcore punk, you know? Yeah, I'd probably make more money if I did literally anything else. But what would you I, but what would you do with that money? Yeah, well, well, if you want the end. First off, real quick, though, before we do change anything, I do want to clarify. There are younger kids booking shows here. I have the DIY room in our venue, which is like a, uh, 70 people, if, you, if you're lucky. Capacity That's fucking event. cool. Yeah, Put us there. there are younger kids doing some shows there. I want them to up the ante a little bit. I want someone – I mean, they better I, – I maybe got three, four, five years left in me, I think, to do this. Ten. Like, Ten. Shit. Uh, we'll see. Ten, but, just so that the crossover is right someone's got to step up and do the next level. Right. And I see, I see potential in kids. I'm liking the way it's going. Like most DIY room shows, other people book now. So it's, it's definitely awesome. going in the right direction, but yeah. this is a public, public call out. Motherfuckers got to start renting the bigger room. You got to start bringing in the bigger bands. You got to start, you know, so that's, that's my, my public challenge. If anyone is even listening to this shit, I fucking, I, I hope someone does because that's how, that's how it comes to be. You know, like the reason why I ended up in doing the hardcore shows was first, I was doing the shows that was considered more like Joe hardcore, hardcore later on in hindsight, but like there wasn't really someone jumping to do 25 to life. There wasn't people trying to get this four year barrier ground, uh, barrel ground fucking, um, overthrow, bulldoze mushmouth you know like mushmouth was able through chris and his connections to play a couple times at trocadero but like the hall shows like you know i booked death threat the first time they played in pennsylvania at before i turned 18 years old you know because i was dialed into that and i wanted to be in that fucking thing And, and i think it takes certain people to get excited and be in the right position and then have the have the people there, the structure. It's also hard when you're young and you don't have what you just said. So anyone who listening to that, 
that's a that's a fucking golden opportunity. The room is there. You don't have to go in and convince AJ. We, we, we gave him the platform. We gave him the platform. They just got to utilize it, you know. And I, it is. We've had many talks about how frustrating it is. Like, dude, if we did this in any other fucking city, if we did this in Philadelphia, you and Bob and sucking Clemo, you motherfuckers would have shows twenty nine nights a month. Yeah, you know. So, and like I said, we know you're a bigger city and this and that, but there there could be more shows here. We personally can't take it on. We don't want to get to a point where we're doing quantity over quality. You know, we don't want to like leave bands in the dust because we're trying to take on everyone that asks for a show. So yeah, we're definitely encouraging younger kids to like step up and start, you know, being those guys. No, I fucking, I love the, I love what you're saying here. Um, So now that we're talking about this whole thing, when, when we think about, when we are thinking about uh, the code show, you know, I know you, you had touched on it a little bit ago when we were hanging. How does it feel? This is, the, is this the first time you're doing a multi-room event in, at the spot? Uh, yeah, I guess technically it is. I mean, I, I'm sure we'll do many of these in the future, actually. We actually almost did one. We had that Chaos and Carnage towards like the, you know, Dying Fetus and Suicide Silence. There's like nine bands or whatever. So we almost did it for that. But yeah, I mean, now we utilize things to their full potential. So I'm sure there will be more. But yeah, this is definitely the first one. How do you feel rolling into it? Do you think that this is going to be something you're going to take on more often? Or is this just because the amazing spectacle that it is that Jamie pulling Madball and all these fucking bands together, you had a guy to be part of it? Yeah, I mean, we... Ty and I were actually going to do our own kind of thing until we found out he was doing that. So obviously we're just, you know, letting this go that route. Um, you know, I, I, there's plenty of other fests. I certainly don't think we need to, and Pittsburgh isn't an easy place to get to. We're not a place where people can fly into for cheap or whatever. I mean, to like FYA in Tampa is like brilliant. I, we can get round trips to Tampa in January for like 75 bucks. You know, we unfortunately don't have any infrastructure like that. So anything we do is going to be more regional and, you know, almost like a sincerity fest type event. Um, yeah. You know, See, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you on that one because you have Ohio, which although, you know, whether what remnants of what was the past is, fl- is flickering out, there's still bands that are coming out. I mean, just look at the success from tied down one to tied down two. you have, the area that we keep talking about over and over again from the Rochester, Syracuse, er, Erie, Buffalo, you know, like that. You have a lot of surrounding support. And then, you know, whether whether you want to believe it or not, Pittsburgh's on the cusp of Apache, which gives yeah. you a ton of bands that don't get as much love from the East Coast Fest like my own. Like I yeah. hear the, I hear there's bands. I hear there's bands from Tennessee that are really starting to kick off. I, Arkansas is a lot easier to get to to Pittsburgh than Philadelphia. Yeah, you know, like you have the opportunity to do something. Not like, and this isn't denigrating. It's like an honestly, like you could be the fest that takes on the bands like you've always had. The bands that may not be at the level to get to the to the to the FYAs and the L and LDBs and you know that this is hardcore's in their first year or two and really give them a platform. Now granted, I mean Bob Wilson, I don't I think he's an alien sometimes because he fucking knows every band the minute they come out. But 
you know, there's definitely an opportunity for you guys to be, you know, some of these awesome bands that we're going to hear about in two years, the first fest that gives them a real opportunity. You guys could do that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I will say, you know, if Detroit can do it, I guess we can too. Why not? They've been popping off lately, you know, between that tied down and then the cold is life thing. And uh, actually, like, like I said, I jumped for two Peter and I were bleeding through for some reason out of every city in America, pick that to be Detroit to be their like 20 year anniversary thing they're doing. We're playing that. So yeah, there's shit going on Detroit. There's, we always get offers from like DIY promoters. So Detroit's doing great seemingly. So um, yeah, fuck it. If they can do it, maybe we will. Maybe I, maybe I'll accept your challenge. I challenge you. I don't, I think that you, you are far too humble and I think humility is important, but, I don't think you realize what you have and the, the things that people would do to travel. I will say Pittsburgh is tough though. You gotta be Pittsburgh doesn't buy the bullshit. So like if it's not actually good, it doesn't get over. So we, I will say it's, it's, it's tough to get kids into shit and to check it out. We're a little, little jaded or calloused or something where it's like, it's gotta be really good. I think it's cause our local bands are really good. So we kind of have that bar a little high. So sometimes, hey man, listen, I will say, listen, all you could do and inv- all you got to do as a promoter is give them the fucking stage. Yeah, it, yeah. It's not your job. It's not your job to be out there being, you know, they got to, you give them the stage. They got to run with it. You know, if, if every promoter had to help every band on stage win, we'd be fucking out of it. You know, we'd never have time for anything else. You got to just let them, here's your chance, kid. You sink or swim, motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I mean, I hate seeing someone die up there on stage. You know, I would love everyone to come through. Yeah, But you know, how many times have you done it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's what I mean. (laughs) Look at Yeah. You know, you gotta like, I want everyone to have a great show. To be honest, there've been some bands that have asked for shows where I'm just like, yo man, it's not going to be worth your time. I've told it's the hardest thing to tell bands. It's the hardest thing to tell a band like, Hey, listen, I want you to succeed. But yeah, and, and dude, it's it's from the older fans, it's from the younger guys. Like, yeah. look, I put you, I put you on this. I don't, I don't, I think you're gonna walk away being like, why the fuck did he let us play if no one was gonna do blah blah blah? Yeah, questioning why you're even a band, you know. But yeah, some band was like, dude, go go play Louisville, man. I I can't do anything for you here, you know. So I try to just save people time. It's not being a dickhead. It's not being elitist. I I just don't. Yeah, I mean. We we did our tour and we had a night or two. I'm like, shit, dude, I wish you would have just been honest and just told us that, you know, fuck it, don't come, you know? So, all right. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple rounding out for this conversation questions because I don't want to keep, um, keep you and keep busting your balls on shit. And I know the, I know the weight of my praise is, is stressing you out. You're right. Um, what is your worst touring experience? Uh, by I show, even... by show standard. Like, what show? I don't, I don't, I'll give you the example that I always say. We played in a show in the Southwest that we booked from bookyourownfuckinglife.com. Yeah. We showed uh, up, we showed up, and we were given a very fair meal at the person's house, which is by today's standards absolutely egregious compared to what yeah. happens to some bands. And then I'm not denigrating or, you know, shit talking. This is it's honest. And it was like, a weird hang because the house people weren't really feeling our vibe, but they were kind enough to give us a meal out on their porch. And then when it was almost time for us to go to the venue, they were like, all right, cool. We're going to go to the venue. And it was at the venue at load in when the guy, I'm like, ah, how do you think the show's going to do? And the guy's like, well, man, 
in the sound guy here. And I got to tell you, we really didn't fly her. We don't have anybody opening for you guys. And it was us in Missouri. Yeah. He's like, so I don't know who's really going to come, but me and me and I forget the guy's name, but me and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Really fucking excited to see you guys. <laughs> it's like, dude, that would have been useful information yesterday. So, so we walked in. And I said, yo, there's no one coming. And we're like, hey, ma'am, thank you for the meal. We're on the road. And he's like, no, no, it's going to be. I'm, I don't know how it's going to work. I was like, listen, ma'am, let's just save this. We can be up Route 66 and on our way. We can, I was like, we've been really psyched to, after the show to do Route 666. So let us just go on our way. Thank you for the meal. And I don't want to waste your guys' time. Yeah. And that was like the the only time in the history of the world where we're like, we're not fucking playing. <laughs> it was like, look, w- let's just save us both the embarrassment here. Yeah. Yeah, that's not rock star shit. That's like doing everyone a favor. So, yeah, I mean, that was mine. So, uh, like, what's your worst? Well, I guess real quick, I can tell you the codes is when we fucking, probably the first time I took them out, that we like drove through this storm to get to New York City and we fucking show up to the venue and we literally dug out a parking spot because, you know, it's fucking New York City. They don't like take care of the streets or whatever. Dug out a parking spot for a van and trailer with, baking pans that we found and then about 45 minutes later pull up walk up to the venue and they're just in there like oh yeah dude there's no show here so for them that was their worst uh for me my worst i don't even know offhand i gotta say uh and i i feel bad saying this but if we're doing the honesty thing here i don't even know specifically but it's got to be something with first blood so I filled in for those guys for a long time and I'm forever grateful that they, they took me around the world. They took me to Japan for the first time, uh, Australia, Mexico, China, all these places, but they, it was hard living, man, that Carl's a bit of a, he's harder than I am. He has the ability to like sleep in vans in 115 degree weather, you know, even when uh, free accommodations are available. So it's gotta be something with first blood maybe a show where coming back down from Canada uh, our guitar player who was from Sweden got literally taken by a border agent, like pulled out of the van, uh, <laughs> taken, driven to the airport and forced to literally just, it's crazy. So we played amnesia rock fest, biggest rock fest in Canada did all the legal paperwork for probably the first time I've ever like traveled internationally. It was like, they actually did it all right. But the problem was when we came back into the US, they basically busted this guitar player because when he flew in from Sweden to New York, he lied about what he was doing. And they fucking kept records on that, that I guess all these Border Patrol people have access to. So when we come back through to literally just play one more show in the US and then everyone flies home, uh, they had they pulled up this record like, well, what are you guys doing? Like, oh, we just played Amnesia Rock Fest because we're all proud that we did everything all legal, you know? And they're like, yeah, well, uh, your guitar player here told the border agent at JFK airport that he was just coming for tourism. So you're going to get in the fucking van with us and we're taking you to the airport and deporting you. Wow. Yeah, that was wild. They were, quote, being nice by allowing him to get his suitcase from the van. And yeah, they drove his ass to the airport, made him buy like a $2,000 ticket and whatever the next flight to Sweden was, sat with him until he walked onto the plane and sent his ass home. Point being, we had, we had to play as a three-piece that night for whatever reason and probably embarrassed ourselves uh, in Long Island, I believe it was. I think Carl maybe played drums and vocals at the same time or something. I don't even fucking remember. I try to block it out of my memory. 
So yeah, probably something with first blood. I actually had no idea you played with first blood. So I'm fucking mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. I filled in for them a bunch of times. Like I said, it was majority of it was great. I'm not dogging them, but it was, I found myself in many hard tour stories from it. You know, Carl, Carl has a, a unique ability to, I mean, the dude lived in a shack in Mexico on the beach for uh, several years, you know, like he, he, he's more accustomed to hard accommodations than even I. God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> God bless you. Yeah. Um, so far up to date, what was your favorite moment at the venue? Uh, maybe seeing everyone's reactions uh, the first time they walked into the new venue a couple months ago. Uh, you know, people at this point, we've been doing shows downstairs for, you know, two and a half, three years, whatever. Basically, whenever shows started back up after COVID. Uh, so, yeah, people were kind of accustomed to downstairs and everyone loved it and all. But, like, I think seeing the upstairs, like, I literally just stood in the middle of the room and kind of, like, watched people come in and, like, everyone's, like, pulling their phone out, filming it, you know, like, being all fucking excited. It had... The best vibe I've seen in a long time, actually. Everyone was like just excited just to be there. So probably that. That's awesome. Um dream, dream lineup, dream scenario, dream show for the venue. I mean no, no, no logistics necessary, no worrying about breaking even. What do you what is it? Well, unfortunately, I had the fucking chance, but it was fucking Saturday of This Is Hardcore this year. Fucking EC wanted to play, but uh, total no go because I'm going to be there all weekend. They'll be but, back. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, definitely Earth Crisis. I mean, for anyone who knows me, they know that that's basically the band that, that I take the most serious, the band that kind of got me into everything in a sense. So definitely them to some degree, but I mean, that's pretty realistic. You know, I'm fortunate and I can call some of those guys friends at least at this point. So I'm sure that'll happen. But something that's far fetched, I don't know, man. I I guess this is also realistic, but having terror there, it, it, you know, which I think is I think terror is the band that people take the most for granted, maybe ever in hardcore, because they tour so consistently and they've been doing it for like 20 years. If a day ever comes when fucking terror breaks up or something, people are going to have a hard dose of reality shock there. You know what I mean? Like terror is consistently like the best shows, the best energy, the best everything, basically. And I hope that the day never comes when that comes to an end. But yeah, I mean, having terror in the room is always going to be uh, always going to be a fucking monumental night. I think that my personal my personal crusade through hardcore going through a lot of different stuff, writing letters to Vogel about despair, to booking buried alive on their demo, to selling terror demos, to booking one of the first shows that he did with World Be Free, that Scott Vogel and any iteration, but especially with terror, they're built to be the most professional band when it comes to performance when it comes to showing up giving the kids what they want but they'll never to my entire interaction let a hardcore scene down with not giving the ultimate fucking show 
and they have no problem. They would actually prefer to play the smaller room. They would always rather play the smallest room they physically can get themselves into so they can stay as close to the scene as possible. And it's so fucking unique as for the, you know, this year marks 21 years of them being a band. I mean, with Keystone Hardcore Jam, you know, a band playing their quote unquote first record usually means anything that the band plays after the first record is less cool. Yeah, they busted through that first record because it was only like 15 minutes. Yeah. And they had newer songs that people went more crazy for. And that just shows me the power of what Terror does as a band, what they did for this entire community and the legacy that they have within our community. Well, yeah, I actually had the same reaction. Basically, I was obviously there. And like, yeah, if you asked me right now, like top five or top 10 hardcore albums of all time, I'm going to put Lois the Low on there, right? I might even say it's my favorite Terror album or whatever. But like watching it, I was like, oh, wait a minute. All these new songs are like better, you know? <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was interesting. It was one of the few times where it's like, no, play, play your new shit. It's cool, you know? Dude, they managed just to do it. It's yeah. so fucking cool. Well, listen, brother, you are probably one of the most humble people because I had to like literally fucking kick it out of you. But I, I really hope that you do realize how much you mean to hardcore all the shit you've done, all the shit I didn't even know you did from the extra touring, but you've made an amazing place for hardcore in your area, in your community. And you're always knowing to support the people that really matter. And I love that you have the balls to push back. Not ever afraid to, you know, go against the grain. I think something that is really, really missing in hardcore is someone who is on the right side of things, kicking ass, doing the shows properly, who are also not afraid to go against the grain and be, you know, oh, you know, I don't really agree with, you know, this. And dude, by saying this, I don't mean you're some fucking alt-right weirdo. That's not the case at all. But just the ability to say, hey, I'm going to push back. I don't fucking agree is enough. I'm willing to be the heel. I will say that. That's a great way to put it. You're the, you have no problem being the heel. That's a great way to fucking put it. You can't have all baby faces. It gets, it gets boring. Nah, well, you are a one-of-a-kind heel, and your legacy is already in stone, and I hope that you just continue as long as you're able to find until you find your successor uh, mentee, the person that you could bring up to relieve some of the pressure on you. I'm just going to steal one of your guys. I'm going to convince them that Pittsburgh is cooler than Philly, and I'm going to steal one of your protégés. All right, uh, you give us Ty Dawson right now. Straight up, did you give us Ty Dawson? Gonna need Stucky, Clemo, Eric. You, done. Whoa, whoa, whoa! No walk. Walk stays. Yeah, I'm, I. This is gonna be a multiple for one kind of deal. Man, if you're if we're if we're giving up walk, man, we're gonna need something else too because he's a he's a powerhouse now. Throw in hair, and you got a deal. Oh, you could have hair. You could literally have Clemo hair stuck uh, Stucky right now. That would be the you know Clemo Clemo would still be able to be in the union. Stucky will be fine, and Kevin Hare can still do jiu-jitsu with you. So that's the trade. We get Ty. Right. You get those three. That's the end of he, it. He was just getting settled in here to the AK Valley, but I'll tell him he's got to go. He's got to go. Pack his bags. Kev, you're going to become a brown belt under Jake and oh. Clemo. And Clemo and Stucky somehow will just be better off because we'll be closer to all the fucking places that somehow Fool's Game plays every weekend. Yep. Awesome, brother. Uh, give us the social so people can check you out. 
Uh, face Rec Rapcore on Instagram. I don't even know what Facebook is. And preserving concerts uh, all across the social for the venue and preserving record shop for the store. We, we keep them separate because they're not everyone that goes to shows gives a shit about records and vice versa. So, Excellent. Well, thank you for everything. This is an awesome conversation and I look forward to hanging and we'll be traveling out there for Codes World. We'll be seeing each other at This is Hardcore and I will make a personal jaunt out there just for another one of those awesome nights where we just get to sit there and eat at all those food trucks in your neighborhood. All right, he's on 5th. Tell me when. I'll be there. Well, I'm gonna make you, I'm making you guys stop here on your way to Detroit for... Uh, you, oh, I didn't know if we're allowed to talk about that. I cannot fucking wait to play well, the play the room. Yes, you're going to play here no matter what. The other bands, they may or may not, but you guys are playing here no matter Shadow what. Shadow Realm is 100% playing the show the Friday before the Coldest Life show. Yep. Can't fucking wait. I'm, I'm so excited for that trip. I'm so like, excited, like, cool, we get to stay at the room again. We get to hit the fucking Detroit show. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Dude, thank you so much. Yep, I'll talk. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one again. AJ is way too kind, way too humble. And I really hope that if you have a list of places you want to go and see, you know, back in the day, we'd say we want to go to CBGBs. You want to go to the Boston's Middle East or maybe Brockton, at Club 121. And then, you know, maybe down the Toes Place in Connecticut or the Tune-In. But nowadays, the stuff that people, I think people still want to see a Boston show in the Middle East, church show at the First Unitarian, Philadelphia. And I think you need to add Preserving Hardcore. It's absolutely fantastic. And free a lot uh, to tie it in with the Bay Area stuff with the out-of-pocket band we had play earlier in the show. Free of some of the shit that goes awry when you have these people who project themselves to be DIY hardcore people, but all they do is act like crazy control freaks and keep the hardcore actually out of the DIY space. So I always want to support DIY people, people that create awesome spaces, create awesome music. AJ is in a fucking a, a category unto himself. Make sure you go to that show we were talking about, Codes World, at the end of September. Make sure you're supporting all the shit that we have going on whether it's the Philly Hardcore shows or This Is Hardcore Fest, our boys in Out of Pocket, great fucking track, Streets of Hate Records. Again, the show notes will have the link to the GoFundMe for Year of the Knife and Maddie. All I can stress and say to lend a, um, a simple thought is that when these kind of things happen, a lot of people rush to get the nitty-gritty. I'm not telling you how to feel, what to feel, but I'll say that in lieu of trying to getting all the lore details and all the things, maybe just sit back for a second and think about what you would want to happen if it was happening to you. Maybe in lieu of rushing to call everybody and make, you know, get the fucking gossip, take a second, whether you're strong enough to pray strong enough to give a good positive emotional vibes to the universe to hope that they will resonate in the person who needs that. I think that's way more important than trying to be the fucking undercover reporter, trying to get the fucking scoop for the fucking five o'clock news. 
then go support these people more than trying to do all this shit. You can always support this podcast and all the show notes are at tihcpodcast.com. Can't wait for next week. Much love to Maddie. You're the knife. And I'll talk to you guys on the next one. Bye-bye.